0: What's up, everybody? It's Wayne, and this is Everybody Wayne Chung tonight. And in less than two weeks, my trial will begin. I face felony charges and more than 10 years in prison in relation to an investigation and open rescue at the largest pig farm in the nation in southern Utah, owned by Smithfield Foods, a global pig farming conglomerate. And as I face this trial, which could completely transform my future, I thought it'd be good to continue... Our exploration of the past, because the best way to learn about what to do in the future is to learn from the lessons of the past. And so our guest today is Amy Meyer. Amy Meyer is a grassroots activist who is most well known for challenging and succeeding at striking down Utah's ag gag law, a law that made it a crime to take photographs or video footage of an animal agricultural facility. And her story is, remarkable one. I didn't even realize that when she took the photographs and video that she took, she wasn't actually even intending to challenge the law. Um, And that technically, she was not even in violation of the law, despite the fact that she was charged under that law. But the story of how one person decided to fight back, just do something, as she put it, just do something, is a pretty tremendous one, because it had nationwide consequences. And instead of silencing activists, the industry, when it passed this ag law, because of what Amy did, and a lot of people supporting her, including Jeremy Beckham, who's also on the podcast, and a lot of lawyers, some of whom you've heard on this podcast before, like Justin Marceau, was that even more people saw the truth. So it's a tremendous story and journey. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Amy Meyer and Jeremy Beckham. What a very cute cat. Whose phone is that? That's my phone. Okay. That's my secondary recording. Let's get this started. Is, it, huh?
1: is that going to be a problem that he's laying on the...
0: <laughs> nah, nah. We love cats on this podcast. The more interference from cats, the better. Speaking of interference, um, I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time on the podcast, Amy, especially given what's going to unfold in my life in the next month. And I think, I mean, honestly, the first thing I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is, why does the state of Utah hate us so much, Amy? <laughs> and I thought you were probably a better person to ask this question to than anyone, given what you've been through. But, I mean, what's your thought? What what is the deal of Utah and animal rights activists?
2: I mean, I just think that Utah State is, you know, and our legislature, people in power in Utah have really strong connections to the industry that doesn't want to go away. Um, There's a lot of legislators who have uh, animal agriculture operations themselves, or they are... You know alfalfa producers, and so they rely on these industries, and so you yeah, it's know like it's like the governor of Utah, right? Yeah, the He's governor an alfalfa of Utah producer, He's, and
0: he sends all his alfalfa to feedlots, that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 a
2: lot of it. I mean, some of it's going overseas to feedlots in other countries. Um, Some of it goes to yeah feedlots across the U.S. And so there's just a lot of conflicts of interest with people in power in Utah, and animal agriculture um and so i think that's why you know they we get this pushback from them because it's a direct you know they view us as threatening yeah. their industries you know when AGGAG was a bill being considered in utah the quotes coming out from these people were pretty crazy you know saying that you know calling us terrorists and saying that, you know, we are trying to ruin their way of life, like talking about it, like it's a wee thing, like these legislators talking about it, like this is an attack on us, but it really it's, it's an attack on their business mm-hmm. that they do, you know, in addition to being representatives um, in the state. And so I think that's the issue we see a lot um, here. And while it'll be different in like cities, like Salt Lake are different. We've been able to make a lot of, good momentum here for animals in Salt Lake City, yeah. but then sometimes we get the state trying to kind of undo the good work we've been able to do in Salt Lake because they just don't want to see animal rights people making any progress for animal rights because they just view it as a threat to their industry.
0: Yeah, Salt Lake City is kind of a blue island in a sea of red, Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of cities like that seem to make tremendous progress unexpected progress even just the amount of veganism you see in salt lake city compared to comparable cities of what two hundred thousand people probably in salt lake city is like that right? Maybe like a quarter million, quarter million, maybe. Yeah, so in a quarter million, itself. a city of a quarter million usually doesn't the city have that itself. many. Yeah. Suburbs, maybe. I think it's like a million, million in metro. In total. But still metro not a area. massive city compared yeah. to New York or San Francisco. But I think there's probably more vegan restaurants in Salt Lake City than in San Francisco, believe it or not. That's very possible. I think we have something and like that. San Francisco is one or something. four times as large. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Do you want me to move this a little bit? Do you feel like it's uncomfortable? Should I move it up a little more? I'm happy to do that. I Both think right? it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I got ahead of myself a little bit, but... The reason you're the right person to ask this question is because you yourself have been targeted. And usually when people are targeted by the state or a powerful industry, they lose. But you didn't. You won. So take us back to the year was 20. What was the year the ag-gag law in Utah passed and you were charged
2: um, I was charged in 2013, okay. which it, it had passed just earlier that year, or was yeah. it? No, it was 2012. That's right. The law was passed in 2012, and then I was charged um, in like spring of 2013. Okay,
0: tell us that story. What exactly happened to, that led for you to be charged for taking photographs outside of a slaughterhouse?
2: Yeah, so I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with these kind of ag-gag laws, but for those who maybe aren't, very briefly, they were laws that were kind of sweeping the country around this time in especially red states states with a lot of animal agriculture that basically created a new crime if you take photo or video of animal agriculture operations Um, and Utah's law specifically there was a few different ways that it made it a crime it made it a crime if you um, gained employment under false pretenses which is the kind of Like, basically trying to stop the work of, like, PETA and Mercy for Animals of hiring people to go undercover. Um, But then, you know, so that was one of the ways. It was also if you, like, um, trespassed onto their property and then took photo or video, that made it a crime, Um, which is what I ended up being charged with, even though I didn't actually break the law so Mm -hmm. um because you
0: didn't trespass on the property you were standing on a public street and they still charge you that's right that's
2: right and you know it didn't and so what happened i had there's a slaughterhouse at the time um the dale smith slaughterhouse and it was in a suburb of salt lake called draper which is a more red suburb um it was one of the more recent suburbs to really be developed and so there had been you know historically a little bit more farming out there Um, and there's this big slaughterhouse there and I used to drive by it um, every week on the way out to volunteer at a local animal sanctuary and it had always bothered me driving by it on the interstate but we had never really done anything against Mm. it until uh, this day at the sanctuary I learned the story of a very special cow named Nandi and on that day I saw Nandi behave in a way I had never seen him behave. He's usually a very calm cow who's just Mm -hmm. chilling at the top of the compost pile where it's nice and warm (laughs) Um, and just like chewing his cud. He's like a very peaceful cow. And I saw him run up and down the property line and he was mooing in a really like stressed manner. And he had just drool coming out both sides of his mouth and just going all down his body. He was clearly very stressed and I ran to get the sanctuary caretaker to see what was happening. And she saw, and she had been seeing it too. And she explained, she said like, Oh, do you see that truck that's driving by the dirt road by us? I was like, yeah. And she explained that when, before Nandi came to the sanctuary, he had been on a farm that used a mobile slaughter unit Mm. to come out to kill the cows. Sure. And she said, anytime a truck, that's kind of like that truck comes out and maybe has the same similar kinds of smells that are going by the property, it causes him to have this reaction. Um, mm. and he had been living at the sanctuary for 10 years already and he still had this, I mean, it was like a very, I just like empathized with him in this moment of like PTSD. I can't explain it in any other way, but to say that it was like PTSD and I just, even though I had been vegan for a long time at that point, had been around animals a long time, it still gave me like a, a kind of like a new awakening moment for cows and how yeah. incredible they are, and how deeply sentient they are, and how deep their emotions run. And it just, I just immediately thought of this, this slaughterhouse. So that's a long way of saying that took me back to see what this slaughterhouse so looks about, like yeah. on the other side because I thought maybe this is, you know, we got to stop people, you know, we got to try to do more for these cows that I know are just going through this place every day. And, um, so on my way home, I just went to the other side of the property. Can I ask you a question real oh, yeah, quick? yeah,
0: So I think most people who have an experience like that, I, most people would probably empathize with the cow probably mm-hmm. and think, oh my God, this is so sad. But most people would think to themselves, damn, this is really unpleasant. Let me get away from this. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is, is it about you before you tell us what you did at the slaughterhouse? Mm-hmm. Why do you think you wanted to go towards it instead of running away from it?
2: I mean, I think just because by that point, I had been volunteering at the sanctuary for years. And Mm. I know we can't just rescue all of these animals at sanctuaries, you know, like I just realistically know we're killing billions of animals. They can't we can't just rely on. Yeah, we just we have to stop it at the source. Right. We have to like do do more to stop it. We can't just like save all the and we have to to stop cows from experiencing this. And I just Mm -hmm. immediately thought of. You know, all these so- cows going into that slaughterhouse are having this same experience Nandi did, but then they're about to die, too. So their final moments of life are, the, like, extremely traumatic. And and more people need to realize what's happening in their backyard. This is literally in our backyard. It's 20 minutes from my house. It's right next door to businesses and homes. And I think so many people... and everyone that lives in the suburbs in salt lake drive by this place every day they go to work just like i drove by it every day i went to the sanctuary and i just saw we got to do more to really show people what's happening in their backyards because sometimes when people see what's happening right here they they care more when things sure. are more directly impacting you and it's like right where you are that's why you know i think i just it, it was i was also part of that i just sure. felt you know like just drawn to it and just to see I, I had my camera cause I was taking cam- photos of the animals that day. So I was like, let's go see what this place looks like. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was just my response, I guess, you Interesting. know, and yeah. So I just decided to see if I wanted to see if it would be a good protest location, maybe when mm-hmm. you're not on the interstate, if there was another road, I didn't even know it, if there was another road. Um, and there was, there's a, a street that goes by the other side kind of behind the slaughterhouse. Um, So I pulled my car over to and I was like, "Okay, there's no sidewalk here, but there's clearly this like space. We could have protesters. Um, And I just I looked at the building and I was just shocked. I could actually see a lot happening Mm -hmm. at the slaughterhouse from, you know, from between me there and the slaughterhouse. There was this huge field and I could even still see a lot from there. You could see um, piles of horns on one side of the building that had obviously belonged to the cows. Um, and then on, on one side where the horns were, you could also see this like unused flesh just spewing out into this dumpster. Um, and on the other end of the building, I could see them directing cows into the building. You know, it was like, it just was all right before your eyes of seeing them go in one side and come out as flesh on the other. And. Um, I was just staring at it for a couple minutes. And after just a couple minutes, then I saw this um, tractor, you know, it's called a front end loader um, come out of the slaughterhouse out of one of these garages carrying a downed cow. This cow was definitely alive moving its head, but couldn't really move much more than that. And I just watched as they drove this cow and disappeared behind um, you know, some truck that was just parked on the property and drive back without her. You know, I just had apparently dumped her. You know, her body on the on the ground, and it was just wild that you could just see this to me. Um, so I was. So
0: I where were they taking her? So then, just just so I understand, there, this cow was taken off of a transport truck or dragged off a transport truck, and then how did they even get her on to the the front loader? Well she they,
2: she wasn't in a truck she came out of the building like came they out opened the building. like I a kind of like a garage door type thing in the okay. building and this tractor thing came out and with her came, on it with her yeah in the bed of this thing on the front okay. um yeah and so and then I don't know exactly what they did with her because they just drove her to the other end of the property and from my angle I couldn't see um because there was just some like trucks parked on the mm-hmm. lot but they it turned around and it didn't have her anymore. So, I mean, really, you know, the only feasible thing I could say is that they just dumped her on the property. Um, you know, not even, not even giving her the, the benefit of obviously, obviously there's no euthanasia happening at these places. They just, you know, they, they can't sell her, her dead body. And so they're not going to bother doing anything with it other than dumping her. Like it's nothing more than trash.
0: Yeah. And so you're standing on a public sidewalk, like a few hundred feet away. Is that about right? And you've got a camera taking photographs. And did the employees notice you? Do they see you at this point?
2: So at that point, they started, someone started to see me. I saw an employee kind of come out of the slaughterhouse and was pointing to another employee at me. And yeah, I was still, I was right next to that road. There was a barbed wire fence there, but I was just, yeah, filming and, had only been there, I don't know, less than 10 minutes. And shortly after they were pointing at me, a guy in a pickup truck drove around and confronted me. And uh, he turned out to be one of the owners of the slaughterhouse. I didn't know it at the time, um, but I learned later he was one of the owners of the slaughterhouse. And he told me that what I was doing was illegal. Um, and he said, I, he told me to stop filming. He said, I can't be here. And there's a new law that says you can't be filming my mm-hmm. property because it's an animal agriculture property. And I was actually very familiar with the ag-gag law. We, our group locally had, you know, tried to organize to do something, to try to stop it when it was a bill. And so I corrected him and told him, you know, that would be true if I was on your property, but I'm on a public sidewalk. I have a right to be here. I'm on a public sidewalk. I can stay here. Um, you know, and he he said he he said some things like you know why don't you have the balls to just come ask me about my business Mm. um and he said he would call the cops so i was like yeah go ahead call the cops like they're gonna tell you i'm not doing anything wrong and so he sped off and called the cops and i i stuck around because i was like i want to prove to this guy (laughs) like he's that i'm not breaking the law so i was just (laughs) i was just stubborn at that point i didn't need to be there anymore but i felt stubborn that like this guy needs a lesson that he can't just bully people on the side of the road and so i just i stayed but i didn't have to stay long after you know just a few minutes um seven or eight cop cars arrived
0: seven or eight yeah For one woman on the side of the street taking some photographs. Yeah, and
2: at that point, I was like, oh, man, what's going to happen here? Jeez. And it was just me, which I was immediately kind of regretting that I had done this alone, which was lesson number one for people to, to try not to do these kinds of things by yourself. Have someone else there in case... You know, the cops were going to tell me to turn off my camera or something. I don't like being the only person there. I mean, luckily, it was a Friday afternoon at like one o'clock. This was not like in the middle of the night, not trying to be sneaky at all. You know.
0: So it's a middle of the day, broad daylight. I mean, the terrifying thing is you say you shouldn't do these things alone. But all you were doing was exercising your constitutional rights in broad daylight. Yeah. And the idea that we cannot exercise our constitutional rights alone in broad daylight without fear of police retribution is terrifying.
2: Yeah. But I, mean, I continue the
0: story. So these, these seven cops show up. What happens? What do they say to you and how do you respond?
2: Yeah, so they first show up, they they shake the hand of the guy who was in the truck um, and talk to him first. And then they come and confront me and they ask me what I'm taking pictures of and what I'm taking pictures for. And I tried to not really talk to them much. I said, you know, yeah, like I don't need to be here mm-hmm. <laughs> or like you don't need to be here. I yeah, I'm just taking. Yeah, I am taking video but it's my right and i asked them like am i breaking any law standing here am am i standing on public property and Mm -hmm. this looks like a public easement to me and is that right and he said like yes this is a you know this looks like a public easement and i was like okay well i'm going to continue to stand here and you know this is this is my right to do this And and a
0: public easement is just like attractive land that even if it's partially private property the public is allowed to use it Because it's a a necessary thoroughfare to get one from from one public spot to another.
2: Yeah, it's basically there's no paved sidewalk there, but, you know, in order to not be in the road. sure. So just a little
0: land off the side of the road. Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
2: So, um, yeah, and he said I was, and he was like, he went back and talked to the slaughterhouse guy more and came and talked to me. And, I mean, the whole ordeal lasted, I think, an hour and a half or two hours of them kind of digging around and they would say, they would come back and say weird things to me to, it, it seemed like they were trying to, um, it, it felt like they were trying to scare me. At one point they said, we know your partner or your we know your boyfriend is Jeremy Beckham and we know he's wow. out here somewhere.
0: <laughs> like, wow. Out
2: here on the property. Yeah. And I was, and Jeremy was in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. <laughs> so, I was just like, I mean, I don't know what what these people are talking about. And I so I just I was like, okay, they're trying to scare me. And then at one How, point had they, had they had
0: you even identified yourself at that point? How did they know that your boyfriend they, was Jeremy Beckham?
2: Um yes. I think I I did eventually, I, I called my lawyer. At, at some point, I asked if I had to identify my, they yeah. asked for my identification, and I asked if I was being suspected of a crime. And, sure. Um, at, at first, I wasn't, and I didn't talk to them, and then eventually, um, they came back and said that, like, now they were investigating a crime, and I had to identify myself. Looks like you're trying to say something. Well, <laughs> what
1: happened was you were in my mom's car. Huh.
0: Oh, do you remember so that looked, you were yeah. in my they mom's at the car? License and registration, and and saw was
1: <clears throat> you were oh, in my right. mom's car, and they actually called yeah. my mom. Really? Yep. They called my mom, and my mom is the one who told them that. Oh no! My mom was like, "Oh, that's <laughs> Amy." You know, she talked that's to them right. at <laughs> length. <laughs> oh no! She talked. You know, she actually Your mom feels, needs to do
0: it. No, you're <laughs> training. <laughs> I know. She actually feels very bad <laughs> poor about Mrs. this now. <laughs> I think
1: she felt bad about it the moment she hung up with them. Actually, yeah. I think she knew she kind of shouldn't have done that, but yeah, you know, nothing in the end happened. I mean, honestly, this story
0: ended up turning out very well. But I think it was, she was it honestly a long difficult road for I Amy, think she was but, honestly
1: just, you know, my mom was just initially just really worried. You know, like yeah, sure. you know, we're with the Draper City Police Department and we have Amy Meyer here. And, you know, my mom has sure. like, what the hell was is going, going on? on. Like, you know, why are the police have Amy, what's going yeah. on, you know, and, you know, who is Amy, why is she in your car? Well, sure. that's my son's girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, and so, and then my, this was the craziest thing, but my mom actually gave the police my phone number, oh, no! and they called me, I don't that's know if you right. remember that, yeah. they, they called me while I was in, I was actually in Madison, Wisconsin, ironically getting arrested. Um,
0: <laughs> was this the James Cromwell thing? It was when I was that's there with hilarious. James Cromwell, <laughs> so I, I had timing. just, I had
1: just got out of jail, I had just got out of jail and on bail, call? and I was just chilling there with Rick, my friend Rick and Madison, and we were talking about like how great everything went with the arrest with sure. James Frankly. And I get a phone call, and you know, and they're like, you know, Mister Beckham, this is Draper City Police, and we're here with uh, your girlfriend Amy Meyer, mm-hmm. and uh, she's been here trespassing at a slaughterhouse, and we want to know if you have anything to do with this. Wow. And I was like, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. And they were like. Which is the right answer. Of course. That's the right answer. Of course. And then then they're like, but we want to know though, you know, your mom wasn't really willing to talk with us either, which I think wasn't true. Sure. But they were like, you know, your mom wasn't really willing to talk with us either and so we just need to figure out if anyone gave her permission to use this vehicle because if not, we might be suspecting her of Grand Theft Auto at this God. point. If we God. Seriously? If we don't have, you know, so we need to know, were you working with her and giving her permission to use the vehicle to be at the slaughterhouse today? No. So they were trying to like rope me into some kind of conspiracy, conspiracy. Yeah. or something by saying like, did you give her permission to be, have this vehicle or did she steal wow. it that day? And again, I just said, I'm not talking to you goodbye and I just hung yep. up on them. Like literally hung up on them, which wow. anyone out there listening should know, just just hang up the phone. Yeah. If they call you, that's the easiest thing to do. Just just hang up the phone. Yeah. But I hung up the phone and I was like, "Rick, I just got a really weird phone call." <laughs> and we, and Rick and I were just trying to brainstorm as to what the hell what the was going on. on. Yeah. Because we were like, "Why would Amy be at a slaughterhouse at one, 1 p.m. PM the day. on a Friday?" And you know, and, and this was a spur of the moment thing. Yeah. Amy kind of did. We weren't even. I didn't even... realize it was the first time you had been there too.
0: Yeah. It was just yeah. completely spontaneous. It, it was
2: very spontaneous. Usually, like Jeremy and I do, like
0: these things plan together. things yeah.
2: together. You know, or like if we were like and that, and that was something and, and Rick was like.
1: Rick was like, well, maybe Amy really was doing something you know she didn't she didn't want to tell you because that's good security culture you know that would be very impressive of me so right and 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 i'm like and i'm like you know i was like you know i and i told rick i was like you know if i was getting this call at 2 a.m maybe then i would think that maybe that's true but i mean why in the world at friday on a weekday at 1 p.m yeah and and i just was so confused and you know i wasn't filled in until later as to what was going on but i was on my way
2: after the cops let me go i immediately called jeremy to to ask his opinion of what's going to happen because eventually what happened with, you know, all this, they you know, they were questioning me and they kept coming back and I got my attorney on the phone and made him talk to them because I didn't want to talk to the cops. And eventually after, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, they came back to me and said, we're going to let you go, but we're going to screen you for charges with the prosecutor, which Mm. I had never heard that phrase before. So I said, what does that mean? And they were like, well, it just means that you're free to go now, but we're going to give our evidence to the prosecutor and he can decide if he wants to charge you with this crime or not. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And so on my way home, I called Jeremy who understands. Can I ask you a question? Did,
0: were they detaining you throughout this time period? So they said you could not leave. you were just stuck there for hours. Yes. Standing. Did they cuff you? Were you in a car?
2: They didn't cuff they me. Didn't they didn't move me to another spot, um, but still just like on the public area there, okay. not cuffed. But yeah, they. I asked if I was being detained and they, said, they yes said yes until they finished. And so, yeah.
0: Did they take your camera away and were they allowing you to photograph no. and videotape what you were doing? Yeah, I was. And what they were doing? Yeah, I was okay. still
2: videotaping. Um, and I even told them at the time, I said, because at one point they said, um that now the slaughterhouse owner had basically changed his tune after he talked to me. And then he started telling the cops that I had trespassed mm. onto their property while I was taking photos and videos. Wow. And I told the police then and there, I was like, I never, I was like, I have been right here the whole time. I've been right here on this public, you know, right here next to the road. I haven't trespassed. There's this enormous barb- barbed wire fence. Yeah. I don't even know how I would have got past <laughs> that barbed wire fence. I am not.
0: An Olympic high jumper. Gymnast, yeah, <laughs> no. I
2: am not a high jumper. And they they did actually inspect the fence and, and see if you had jumped to over to see to see if it looked like it had been broken or sure. like cut anywhere. And when they came back, that you know that was part of what they said. They're like, looks like the fence is still intact, and huh. we didn't see. Um, anyone else anywhere on the property? We did an, an inspection and couldn't see anyone else. Like, still yeah. looking for Jeremy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and how um, tall is this
0: fence? Just so I, uh, so I can paint the picture. I
2: mean, probably five feet tall or okay. something, maybe five or six feet tall. It definitely.
0: So, in theory, it's, it would have been possible, maybe, for you to get over, other than the barbed wire on top. It would
2: have been possible Just for very some, painful. Humans. some humans, Yeah. Like Simone <laughs> yeah. ma- like Biles I mean, could have flipped over I am over not it. brave enough to cross over a barbed wire fence. Yeah. Like, and barbed yeah. wire
0: fences, if you ever tried to cross them, I mean, maybe I shouldn't... Well, I mean, I guess everyone knows I have crossed many barbed wire fences. They're not fun to cross. You need to have the right gear to get across them, yeah. or you can hurt yourself pretty badly.
2: Yeah, it's not a spontaneous decision yeah. that you, you make, make at 1 p.m. <laughs> on a Friday yeah. when on a busy road right by an interstate. Yeah. Like, that's not yeah that would be so noticeable yeah. and and not even and what would have i I'd like to think I'm a little smarter than that that if I'm going to like trespass onto a slaughterhouse, it wouldn't be just to like get photos from a field. I don't know the whole thing just didn't That's make bizarre. sense yeah um so yeah, when I left, I called Jeremy. I remember calling Jeremy. I was really shook up because I had the I hadn't had like an hour and a half two hours spent with a cop by myself ever usually I at least had another activist with me and
0: why do you think they had eight cop cars?
2: Well, I also learned later, didn't know at the time, learned later that one of the owners of the slaughterhouse was also the mayor of the town. Traper, that's right. So, I yeah. mean, he's essentially their boss, yeah. you know? And so, um, I, I think if the you know if you're a cop and your mayor calls and says there's someone messing with my business over here everybody
0: comes out yeah yeah because yeah. Draper's not a big town no I mean eight cop cars might be like half the police
2: department yeah like, I know it's also do like, you know how like, big like, Draper is it's, it's, it's grown be. a lot since well,
1: I will say at that time it wasn't too big but I it's would f- guess thirty f- that's where they just moved the jail the prison oh, to yeah that's to, where I heard about it because it's developing no. like crazy but yeah. yeah ten years ago I don't why think why did it was you
0: point at me when you said <laughs> that's why Jeremy just pointed that's where <laughs> <laughs> but you it's probably like a 30,000 person town maybe i, I don't it's think hard it's to very say, large yeah, i mean it's a yeah. smaller yeah. suburb yeah. yeah so six yeah. cop cars or you said six eight yeah seven or eight seven or eight mm-hmm. that might have been half the police department just yeah. for you yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i know and it was you Sometimes know i think
1: police are bored yeah honestly i think there's some weird call let's go see what 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 my buddy's doing out That's there just, <sighs> honestly i think there's some boredom and yeah. that's, yeah. that's why so many cops respond to things. This isn't like a DUI or a DV call. And that's mm-hmm. like 80% to 90% of their job. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that they have a lot of interesting things going on in Draper. Usually Draper is also not the kind of place that gets like protests or anything. Sure. Like, they don't get first amendment activity, activity yeah. a lot either. So I think, you know, me trying to tell them that just no one had ever had to make that argument to them before maybe or not very often um and so i called jeremy to see you know they told me i told him what i was doing and he told me that they called him too Um, and I asked, you know, oh, they're screening me for charges with the prosecutor. What does that mean? And he was like, oh, that means they don't have enough evidence to do anything. You're going to be totally fine.
0: Hmm. Good Um, prediction, Jeremy. (laughs) Well, we can laugh about this now because Amy was charged, but she wasn't convicted. Just so you'll know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not. Hopefully I didn't spoil the end of the story, but I think the fact (laughs) that she's out here today is probably telling you that she didn't suffer too many consequences not that it isn't yeah. terrifying to go through these processes even if you're not ultimately charged and convicted but
2: yeah yeah i mean so it yeah so i didn't ev- i didn't even have to go to jail or anything it seemed like everything would be fine and it wasn't until a week and a half later actually the first sign that something was going to happen to me was i got i started getting a couple letters from attorneys soliciting my business for wow. them to help me and i was like what is this about what is this about <laughs> and then like the next day i got a letter from the prosecutor's office saying that I was being charged under the Utah's ag-gag law, agriculture no. operation interference, um, which Jeremy's reaction at that point I still, was, I think I remember this. This is awesome. That's,
0: <laughs> Jeremy! <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, because he could see that, that you know, the case was really going to be weak because I had obviously not even violated the law in the yeah. first place. But, you know, it just kind of goes to show that these laws even if they it was wrong to begin with the 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 law was wrong in itself we shouldn't be criminalizing just exposing problems in in any of our systems especially systems that are you know food systems for some people and sure. are like you know causing immense suffering for animals but more than that they are using this law to try to intimidate people who are within their legal rights sure. who are you know doing First Amendment protected activity it's still used to bully them Um, and luckily you know I just was fortunate enough to be able to connect with a lawyer who had already worked with me who was willing to represent me and I knew I could reach out to groups like PETA for help and they agreed to help like financially fight this for me um, and supported me um, through all of that but you know who knows like how many people they could have bullied who wouldn't have the, you know, be able to make those connections as quickly. And what were
0: the possible sanctions for a violation of this ad gaggle? I don't even remember. Do you remember Um, what it was?
2: I think I do. I think it was, um, it could face a six month jail term, um, pretty significant fines. Okay. Do you remember all the specifics, Jeremy? It it was
1: a class B misdemeanor. And so that's punishable up to six months in jail and, I don't remember the fine off the top of my head, to be okay. honest
0: with you, but it's up to six months in jail. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy was excited, but were you concerned about this? I
2: was, of yeah, I, I was. Mean, how could I hadn't, an, yeah, and at the time, you know, I I think sometimes, especially when you get things saying that you know you're facing jail time, and you get this official letter from the state, um, I had at the time. I had just barely been accepted into the AmeriCorps VISTA or the AmeriCorps program with a Mm. local botanical garden, which, you know, part of that is, you know, you do like a background check and stuff. And I was like, is this going to show up on my background check? Like, what is like, you know, the AmeriCorps program, which is funded through the, the government, what are they going to think when they see like animal agriculture operation interference like that's not something they would have seen before and i was you know even though americorps pays total crap i was very excited for the position and the opportunity so i was like is this going to ruin my chance of being able to do americorps with this incredible botanical garden and what's this just going to do for me like in the immediate term you know Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's why i was mostly afraid i mean i i didn't I, and because, you know, just thinking of like, okay, if I am going to face these charges in Draper, Utah, where the yeah. mayor is the owner of the slaughterhouse and there's a lot of still kind of farming type folks out there, sure. who, what is that jury going to look like? And what are they going to think that someone from, you know, someone from the city came out and was just trying to take photos and videos of the slaughterhouse? Like, I I just wasn't totally confident that I would win, even though I like clearly the facts like i think should speak for themselves but you know with how it could be framed and the people who i might be who might be making those decisions i just wasn't confident it would turn out in my favor yeah yeah
0: yeah so what did your lawyer say when you reached out to them um, were they were they feeling good about the case or did they think that this is kind of something you should be really concerned about i mean how did how did the criminal case cuz i mean we'll talk about two separate stages of your process in this cuz there was first a criminal case that was resolved somehow and I actually don't even recall how it was resolved.
2: Yeah, well the it was kind of interesting. So yeah, the the criminal case my I think my lawyer who is a little um who was like a little wanted to be realistic of, you know, you know, it's not just like clear-cut necessarily. He kind of said the same thing of like, okay, well it's Draper. <laughs> I yep. don't know what these people are going to think of this. Um, but I he was like, do you have video of the time there? I was like, yeah, I, like we can give them all my video. But the video makes it very clear. The video was just like on a little, uh, just a normal, very small lens on a digital camera. It, it was nothing fancy, um, no zoom lens. And so you can tell I'm really far away from the slaughterhouse. And you can even mm-hmm. see that barbed wire fence, fence in the sure. frame. So he was like, okay, the first thing, let's just turn over all your footage to to the, um, you know, to the prosecutor. And so that's what we did. Um, And they sat on it for quite a while, actually. And it started making me a little nervous um, that they were still just sitting on it and hadn't really done anything. We had like a a pretrial something scheduled and... um, eventually kind of Jeremy and I were strategizing what we should do and we decided um, that the media was probably going to start picking up on, on it. They'll see, you know, this pending in the court system and it's going to look a lot more unique than what's on, you know, what's going through the courts. Normally don't see animal agriculture operation interference very often. So we decided we should try to get um, kind of in front of what the media might try to say about it by like, telling my side of the story to mm-hmm. the media. And so that's smart. Um, we went to Will Potter with green is the new red.com um, blogger at the time who was covering ag gag laws a lot and shared the story with him. And he decided to write a story about it, about mm-hmm. my story and shared the footage there. And um, as soon as he published his blog, it started getting picked up by uh, the local media a lot, and the story just went pretty viral within 24 hours. It was it was very viral all of a sudden, and um, I think yeah, I think it was the next day after Will's blog went up that the prosecutor's office called my lawyer and said, uh, "Yeah, we were able to to look at that video footage, and um, we're going to drop the charges wow. now." <laughs> yeah, um, that's so, the power of good media. Yeah, yeah, I I certainly think that it wasn't a wasn't a coincidence sure. that it was right after the story was kind of blowing up and they were looking pretty foolish and and I think it it frankly I think a lot of reporters um it was kind of easy for them to empathize with my case because this is their kind of work too well, sure. it would really threaten the work that they do uh especially for investigative journalists you know they want to be able to have these basic rights to collect sure. photo and video um, from public public sidewalks, too, so in public spaces. Um, so that's that's really how the criminal charges got dropped.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. When did Leighton write his story? Was it around this time or was it after?
2: Um, I think it was actually a great after piece the, the, the nation. He- in yeah. video
0: that he made that I, I thought was just incredible.
2: Yeah. That happened after the charges were dropped. dropped. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, what happened to you is something that happens all the time in the criminal justice system. I think it happens not just to activists, but to anyone who's facing some effort of police intimidation. I mean, like it happens to homeless people all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kind of like if the cops are sick of someone being on the streets in San Francisco, they'll, I I just blogged about a friend of mine who was charged with assault for merely just kind of getting into a verbal altercation with a security guard in a private park in San Francisco. And they charged him with assault, like felony assault, I think it was, just to kind of scare him from being in San Francisco. And overcharging is something that is, it's basically a form of extrajudicial punishment. I mean, thank God you didn't have to spend a night in jail, but he spent like a couple of days in jail, didn't actually commit the offense. Now, there's no judge and jury to decide whether he had actually assaulted the officer, but he still had to spend the time in jail. And now he's got bail. You know, he's got a legal situation that even if it's resolved, it's terrifying. You're homeless, you're poor. And, and thank God you had attorneys, but a lot of people just end up taking plea bargains, right? Because they think this is a really scary thing. They're going to give me a plea bargain where, you know, I'm not going to have to serve any more jail time. I'm going to have to pay like court costs and maybe like $500, but at least I'm not going to have to go back to jail and I can live my life. But it also makes people kind of afraid. Yeah. Afraid to do anything that crosses a security guard. Afraid to do anything that crosses a police officer because they know, damn, like if they can do this to me when I didn't commit a crime, you know, what can they do to me if I actually do something wrong? If I'm jaywalking or if I'm doing drugs or something like that. And it's it's yeah. bad. It is. It's a bad part of our criminal justice system. Thank God you had some attorneys.
2: Yeah, and I mean I think my my living situation is so much and my life is so much different than so many people. Like I don't have children depending on me, who sure. if I go to, to jail, what happens to them? Like there's a lot of people who like they can't afford to take mm-hmm. the risk of like maybe facing six months in jail for a lot of reasons. And, you know, that was something I was, you know, more easily able to be like, OK, no, I'm sticking with my guns. What I did was not wrong and I will fight it. And but that was easier for me to make that just sure. choice there's because I have. People. A lot of these like privileges of, you know, having an attorney, um, being in a situation where, yeah, there's not dependence on me who, like, if I go to prison, things will fall apart. You know, I won't lose my home mm-hmm. if I'm in, if I go to jail. Um, so, yeah, that's, I had a different situation than a lot of people who might find themselves in a similar situation.
0: Sure. Did anyone reach out to the Draper mayor? Uh, like in the media? To ask him what his thoughts on all this were. I'm just Uh curious because there's, it seems to me that's kind of an angle of the story that I haven't heard a lot about. Yeah. The fact that there was. Yeah. It it should should have got more attention. Imparted on the system.
1: Yeah. I I don't think anyone really did, but you're right. Is he still the mayor? No. He hasn't been the mayor for some time. But
0: that slaughterhouse is still there? No,
2: actually. Just in the last year. uh, Yeah. I think within the last year, the slaughterhouse um, got torn down to make, because that part of the, the county is developing a lot. So it got wow. torn down for uh, huge apartment buildings. I think last I heard, I think the slaughterhouse was moving into sadly, like it's, it's not like it went out of business. I think it went, they were going to build a larger facility in Idaho last I heard, but mm. I haven't followed up on it. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I've had a lot of experience in these small counties and cities and it, it, it really is the case that the law that's on the books is not the law that actually unfolds on the streets. And, and one of the reasons I think it's important for more people to hear the stories, because the only way for us to square those two things is for people to fight for their rights. Cause you know, it's, as you said, the average cop in Draper, Utah probably doesn't work with first amendment issues very often. Yeah. Certainly doesn't deal with Animal rights actors very often because it's a farming County. And so When a situation comes up where their interests are, you know, their perceived interests are being threatened, all that stuff that's written on the Bill of Rights and on a piece of paper just gets thrown out the window and it just becomes a battle of almost physical power, you know? Right. They've got the men, they've got the guns, you're just one person with a camera and, yeah. So tell us what happened after that. I mean, when did this become a civil lawsuit?
2: Um, so yeah, so the criminal charges got dropped and then, um... I'm trying to remember, sorry, how it all unfolded, but um, I think I was basically approached by... um, Actually, can I add one thing, too, which is kind
0: of important? One of the reasons plea bargaining is very dangerous in our system is because generally, if you want to bring a civil rights lawsuit against a jurisdiction for violating your rights, you can't have pled guilty. Right. One of the conditions of a civil rights lawsuit is usually that the charge has been dismissed and it was therefore illegitimate. Well, if you concede that you were guilty... Which a lot of people, like like my friend in San Francisco, who did not commit a crime, Yeah. He and I think he did ultimately plead to something like misdemeanor trespass or something like that, but he didn't have grounds for for cha- challenging what happened to him because he pled guilty. And it didn't happen in your case because of the media attention, but it would have been totally understandable if you had pled to something, right? Like yeah. six months in jail, you've got this AmeriCorps thing coming up. I mean, you can't have that interfere with your life, and a lot of people would have just pled to something. I'm not saying people shouldn't plead, but it's part of our system that... The government coerces you into plea bargains even when you haven't committed a crime with, like, this sort of Damocles hanging over your head yeah. of a long incarceration. Yeah. So.
1: I remember, I mean, I, I had a case, too, where myself and this activist named Lexi were charged um, in, by Farmington City for, uh, they just had an ordinance that was, like, protesting without a permit. And a blanket ordinance that says you can't protest without a permit is unconstitutional. That's very clearly established. Yeah. But Farmington had an, had an ordinance like that, and literally there were just four of us protesting this place called Lagoon Amusement Park. And um, I think they, had, I think they could only identify me and Lexi for whatever reason. So we ended up being the only two people charged. And um, you know, as soon as I was charged, you know, as soon as I learned I was being charged, I immediately recognized this is a totally bogus case and Mm -hmm. we have a fantastic civil claim and this ordinance is facially unconstitutional. Everything's terrible about it. But Lexi, she was a social worker, Mm -hmm. actually a licensed social worker. And as soon as she got charged, she actually got like suspended um, from her job. And I mean, I remember, you know, they immediately, just like they always do, like you're saying, started offering, you know, basically really good plea deals that were like, Plea in abeyance, which basically means if mm-hmm. you don't get any in any more trouble for six months, the whole thing goes away. But like you said, it still does carry an admission of guilt. Yeah. So you can't sue. And I remember having multiple conversations with Lexi, you know, because she really wanted to take that deal. She just wanted to go back to work. Yeah. And be a social worker. And um, it was just really weird. I had I had to just be like, please don't do that. No. You know, I promise you, if we stick through it, you know, it will get dismissed. We will sue. And we will win. And all that did happen. But um, like in in the moment, yeah, you know, and and police actually showed up to both of our doors to uh, charge us, which is actually unnecessary for a misdemeanor charge. They can do service by mail, yeah, just like they did with Amy for the ag gag. But they just like chose this extra layer of intimidation, I think. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I, that's a good example, I think, of how they they use these plea deals to coerce people.
0: Yeah yeah there's a lot of academic literature um, in our system about and it's it, the exact percentage varies by jurisdiction. My guess is that in Utah it's it's similarly high, but I think it usually is anywhere from 90s to sometimes 95 98 percent of all criminal cases get resolved with plea deals and it's funny because we look at other countries with these astonishingly high conviction rates and we always say like oh my God, like in Japan or Russia you know where there's no legitimate criminal defense system. Yeah, you know, they're basically railroading all the defendants. We kinda of do the same thing through the plea bargaining system. Where yep. so many people are forced to concede to offenses that maybe they didn't commit or at least or maybe they have some defense, but they can't really litigate it properly because it's so hard to fight these cases. It it, it damages your life in so many ways. So yep. people don't fight. And we lose yep. our rights. And and lots of times too, people end up with counsel that doesn't want to fight.
1: Exactly. I mean, from their perspective, they're like, why don't you just take the deal? It's over, you know, you you know, you don't get any trouble and it all goes away. And then, I mean, I've been in a position before for another time I was charged from protesting where I had counsel like that. And then when I like, you know, firmly told my counsel, no, I absolutely want to fight this because I know that we can sue later and this is illegitimate. And then it was just this really awkward position where my counsel kind of resented me and mm-hmm. I know they kind of resented me for, you know, they felt like they like worked for this plea offer and that I wasn't like respecting their work to get that offer yeah. by rejecting it. And so the, the whole, you know, it, 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 can feel very alone in yeah. a way to like, you know, just go up against all that.
0: Yeah. You're talking about my entire life. <laughs> yeah. Almost every lawyer I've, I've worked with. And, and honestly, a lot of times these lawyers are, are really well-meaning. They're just not saying the forest and, and they're just looking at the tree and, from a certain perspective, it, it might actually be the right thing for an individual well, and also, to say, "I'll concede to you know, the plea bargain." And
1: we have to also pl- look at the fact that you know, our, our cases are weird. From mm-hmm. you know, criminal defense lawyers, ninety nine percent of their work is you know DUIs, domestic violence, and where you know a, a plea deal like this might make sense, might make rational sense, but they're not used to you know dealing with you know cases where there's some higher purpose or. They're, you know that that's that that's just something that's kind of new to them even, and yeah. actually is I think sometimes we know more than they do, yeah. Um, about that and that that's a hard dynamic.
0: Yeah.
2: And it's also their job to look out just for, for you, interests. like your mm-hmm. interests, and so if it's like no, like what I can guarantee is that, like this is like your best course of action, and I can't know that you will be fine if you fight this. Like you're more likely, you know. So like they're looking out for your interests and your interest in looking out for the bigger picture you know, is a little bit harder to expect them to look out for sometimes, I think.
0: Yeah, I will say though that I've worked in primarily two big domains of law. One is criminal defense, both my own defense and others, and more generally just First Amendment legal work as an activist, and then also working in a large corporate law firm doing securities litigation. And the difference between the way lawyers interact with their corporate clients and their individual criminal defendants' clients is just like night and day, you know? And so part of it is they're looking out for your interest, but lawyers in the in the corporate context are so willing to bend and and manipulate and do whatever it takes to serve their clients' interests, whatever they are, whether they're just, you know, getting out of the case or no. Like, you know, if Facebook wants to continue selling information to Cambridge Analytica, our lawyers will continue arguing for it and doing whatever they want. So partly it's just the, both the culture of criminal justice and the fact that so many criminal defense Clients have so little resources and you know, every lawyer is always thinking to themselves, okay, you know, I don't I don't know if your lawyer in this case was being paid by you or they're a public defender. They were a public defender. They're a public defender. So they're just thinking, okay, I could spend a lot of time fighting this case and maybe even win, but I'm not gonna get paid anymore. And I'm already completely overloaded. That's definitely part and of it. And and, and then well, I, I also I just think don't wanna fight. Even and- if it is a good fight, I don't want to fight. Well, at a big law firm, your corporate masters tell you to fight. You know, you're getting six hundred dollars an hour to fight. Right. You're like, yeah, let's fight more. And the other let's thing do too is with
1: with these criminal defense lawyers, like that public defender I had. You know, again, like ninety nine percent of the time, they're in this mode of, I'm just trying to keep my client out of jail. Yeah, that's my goal is just get them. You know, keep them out of jail, keep them out of jail, keep them out of jail. Here comes a plea offer to me for this protest yeah, case. It keeps like, you clean out of jail. Demands. And so, from their perspective, they're like, why the hell wouldn't you take this deal? Mm-hmm. Like, they just think you're insane. Yeah. And you know, and, and they don't have any. Generally speaking, they have very little First Amendment training. Why yeah. would a public defender need to learn a lot about First Amendment law? They think maybe they can require a permit yeah. to protest. Honestly, like I've had to train many lawyers I've had about yeah. First Amendment law, and then they also kind of resent that too. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's it's just kind of a it's, it's just a difficult dynamic.
0: Yeah, I mean one thing I'd say is I, you should always listen to your lawyer obviously and, and take their advice, but you have to believe in the course of the action you're taking as a client and as yeah. a defendant. That that should be the number one. And if your lawyer doesn't respect that, you probably need a new lawyer. Mm-hmm. And it might be hard. It, it might be very socially unpleasant, as it sounded like with this particular lawyer. Did you stick with them through the case? Or did um, you end up so them?
1: Actually, what ended up happening with that was... This is actually hor- a horrible ending. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> was I had a completely separate criminal case that... um you know, sorry to use a speciesist expression, but I kinda knew my goose was cooked on that one. Okay. And so it all got wrapped up into, into one, one. kind of big global plea deal. Uh, so I actually okay. did end up taking a plea deal, which is horrible. <laughs> I know that's horrible, but um but if it would have just been that one thing, I would have fought it all the way.
0: Yeah. I mean th- there's nothing wrong with taking a plea bargain. Yeah. Even even if it's a bad plea bargain. Yeah. Sometimes you take and it. And like because we were talking about, about the James fight. Cromwell thing,
1: you know. Yeah, I took that sure. deal because yes, I did disrupt that meeting and sure. you know, yeah. so in some
0: cases you just it's a it's a good offer and you actually Absolutely. are liable for something. Yep. Yep. But whatever the course of action. Is fundamentally you have to believe in it, and again at the, at the highest levels of law, when when it comes to corporate defendants, it's it's very clear they're the masters, they're the bosses. You know, we we did everything we could to make sure our clients were happy and pleased, and we were their servants. I mean, in many ways, I think we really did live up to the legal profession's ethical code, which is we serve our clients. But too often, when it's a public defender, a criminal defense lawyer who's working with an indigent client, you know that. That fundamental mantra, that fundamental code of of the legal profession disappears completely just in favor of doing the thing that's easier or convenient. And I've had it happen to me over and over again. So uh, until very recently, I have been convicted of crime. I've been charged, I don't know how many times. I mean, my first felony charge was in the year 2007. And I've been arrested at least a dozen, maybe two dozen times now. Every single case I had, my lawyers told me, take a plea deal, take a plea deal, take a plea deal. I didn't take a plea deal a single time. In all those cases, and every one of those charges was dismissed.
1: Yeah, I believe it.
0: Right? And in every one of those cases, if I had taken a plea deal, there would have been all these terms. You know, uh, you can't go to Burberry for the next three years. I mean, that's very common And then if you
1: violate those terms, it just results automatically to conviction. conviction, No jury trial. Absolutely. No
0: jury trial. You get sentenced immediately. So in every one of those cases, I I, I basically could not have been an activist from the year 2007 to today if I had taken those plea terms. And so... Yep. Good for you, Amy, for, for not... Did they even offer you a plea bargain in that case, or did it not even get to that point because we they were didn't, so...
2: Yeah, I don't think we got to that you point. You didn't even got to that point. Yeah, yeah, it just, you know, I had said, you know, I wanted to plead you not wanted. guilty okay. at the, like, first meeting, where, but then we just, yeah, handed over our video evidence, and that's as far as we got. We didn't get okay. further than that.
0: Who was your criminal defense lawyer?
2: It was Stuart Golan.
0: Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. I
2: usually didn't take criminal cases, so yeah. I mean it was, you know, a really great thing to to help us out there. For so. sure. sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. Is it okay for me to say why I'm reacting that way or sure. Is it better? Yeah, I mean, so Stewart unfortunately passed away and you know, um took his own life and it's a hard life as a lawyer and, and trying to fight the good fight and seeing all the injustice in the world. I don't know exactly why, but I'm sure seeing cases like that didn't help him feel inspired and hopeful about the world. Um,
2: yeah. I mean, I can't really speak to, to any of that, like specifically, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly hard work to be doing and it's, you know, I mean, we're obviously, it it's still really sad to be without him because he was a really good person, but it's also left, you know, a, a very gaping hole for civil liberties now in mm. Utah, too. Like, so even broader than the just personally missing a friend, um, you know, even it, not just for animal rights, even, you know, Utah, Salt Lake was no different than most of the country um, after the George Floyd mor- murder and there were Black Lives Matter protests happening here. And there was a lot of, you know, ju- it was a scary time for you know, making sure that activists would be supported if their civil liberties were being violated. And it was like, who do we even suggest they turn to right now? Who are the lawyers in Salt Lake who could be helping them now? That person used to be Stuart and before then, um, Brian. And it's certainly like, um, a gap that I think needs to be filled here. And I think in other places too. Yeah. You know,
0: it's weird. There's so many lawyers and so many people go to law school. And I know so many recent law graduates who are struggling to find work and yet there are these huge needs that are not being filled like civil rights litigation for activists, for indigent people. It's just, there's no money behind it. You know, all the money is behind these big corporate cases involving Facebook and Amazon and Walmart. And those lawyers get paid seven or $800 an hour while someone like Stewart who's trying to do something good for the world is, you know, maybe it's not like he developed a practice, but a lot of people like that are struggling to, to find anything that they can do that's going to pay their bills yeah and, and he had to
2: do other law too yeah to support absolutely just to make sure he that was he, he was really about. passionate about and it's yeah. it's
0: one of the dreadful things about our legal system that needs to change mm-hmm. yeah no I'm sorry about the, the loss your friend that sucks yeah but yeah so so how did the civil rights case commence I mean how did you decide you wanted to do this
2: um, I think I was approached I, I can't remember super specifically, who, But it was basically um, PETA and ALDF were interested in fighting Utah's ag-gag law and had, you know, been fighting Idaho's ag-gag law and just, you know, saw it as the very unconstitutional thing it was and saw it as an opportunity to to fight. And they approached me to ask if I wanted to be a plaintiff on the case because they thought that you know, this did directly impact me and I should have good standing, um, to be a plaintiff in addition to them, you know, because they could have standing because, you know, like PETA does, you know, part of the work PETA does is also stopped by Utah's ag-gag law since it had that, um, part I mentioned earlier that made it a crime to gain employment under false pretenses and then film. Um, and so they asked me if I wanted to be a plaintiff and I, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought it would be great. I was still really angry about the whole sure. thing and just was like, um, yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. Um and so uh And Pete yeah, is it, one
0: of the few animal organizations that actually has the resources and legal experience to actually do this.
2: Yeah, and yeah, I knew Because they have
0: a multi million dollar budget and a good team of lawyers.
2: Yeah, and at the time Matthew Strugar was on their team and I was I knew Matthew and had a lot of confidence in him and Um, yeah,
0: Matthew's amazing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, some of the ALDF folks I knew were, you know, really strong attorneys too. And so I was like, this is the team I would pick if, you know, I was Mm going to be doing this. And they had Stuart as, you know, the local person. And I obviously really trusted Stuart as an attorney and as a friend to be that person. And so, yeah, I leapt at the opportunity to be a plaintiff and, um, you know, it, it took a while to work through the courts, and they did try to say I didn't have standing, um, but the, the judge found that I absolutely did because this did directly impact me. And I can't just,
0: believe they even made that argument with you. You were charged under the law. How could you not have standing? So yeah. for those of you who don't know what standing is, standing is a concept under Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution that says you cannot bring a case unless you have an injury in fact. You have to be an actual injured party. And I think in North Carolina, when Pete initially challenged the gag State, our statute in that state, they actually got the case dismissed. And I think they overcame this eventually. Jeremy, you might actually know better. I don't know if you've been following the North Carolina litigation because no one had actually been charged yet, right? So PETA just theoretically was saying, hey, you know, we can't do investigations because they passed this ag-gag law that makes it a crime to, you know, say that you're interested in working for the company when you're really just trying to investigate them to take photographs or expose misconduct at the company. Um, and, a, and a federal court threw it out saying, you don't have an injury yet. You know, you have to go injure yourself. And you are a classic case of someone who clearly does have standing because you were charged. Your life was disrupted in this very fundamental way because of the ag, ag charge against you. <clears throat> I so. think their
1: argument, though, was that the the injury has to be ongoing for a 1983 claim. And so they said, well, we dropped the charge.
0: Yeah, so it was dismissed. Mm-hmm.
1: That, I think that was what they tried to argue. Yeah. So it was all about, like, does Amy have a reasonable fear, fear of future prosecution? continuing, yeah, whether she's being chilled. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyways, but you survived the standing challenge. And, and ALDF, this is Justin Marceau, right?
2: Um, Justin Marceau was also, yeah, he was also an attorney in the case. Okay. Yeah.
0: Was he working with ALDF at that point? Or how was how was he interacting with you?
2: Oh, he... I don't think he worked for ALDF. He worked with ALDF though. Okay. Or, he was
0: already a law professor at I that point. I don't remember, honestly.
2: Yeah, he was a law professor in Colorado mm. by that point. Was it was it um, Christopher
1: Berry maybe? Christopher Chris Berry was
2: yeah the main person at and ALDF. there was um uh, uh Justin there was another Justin at ALDF. Um, I don't
0: know another Justin. I don't no? remember. Okay.
2: okay. Edit that part out. I can't remember his <laughs> name. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, ALDF had the, a couple attorneys, and then Stugar and Stewart. Um, Who
0: were the lawyers you personally worked with most? Was it Stugar? Was it Justin Marcel? Mm. Yeah, it
2: was. I know
0: Justin thinks very highly of you, and you know, thought yeah, the case was an amazing case.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was it was Stewart a lot. Stewart was really my main point of point contact. contact. Okay, he was just yeah.
0: working with the the outside counsel to. To get the case together.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. and you know, I think I would hear from them somewhat, but you know, just being a plaintiff, I didn't have to. They were doing all, all the work. heavy lifting. They sure. were the lawyers writing all the things. I, my, you know, I had to be deposed, and when yep. I was deposed, Stewart was by my side through that. Yeah. Um and got me ready because I didn't even really, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand our legal system at all. So when it was like, I'm being deposed, what does that mean? Yeah. Had <laughs> so, you been deposed before? No, that was my first time being deposed. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, the whole, everything about it was new to me. And so, Huh. yeah.
0: So this is a, this is a federal claim, obviously in federal court. And, and, and tell us what happened after you filed the lawsuit. The, I guess, what County is it?
1: Or Salt is it Lake, just the city of Salt Lake
0: County? It's Salt Lake County. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, Salt Lake County. Okay. Draper Salt Lake County. Yeah. I'm I'm a little surprised the Salt Lake DA decided to pursue this charge. Because the Salt well, Lake DA oh, is probably sorry. It well it was Draper
1: Justice Court, which is located in Salt Lake County. So it was Draper has their own city prosecutor.
0: I see. So it was a city prosecutor. That makes who also a worked more sense for the mayor. Who also worked for the mayor. And was, was the, appointed by the mayor? Yes. Wow. And yeah. so it's That's so incestuous. And
1: so it's the, the owner of the slaughterhouse.
0: Okay. But the defendant in this case is Salt Lake County, because they were Kind of well, the jurisdictionally def- superior oh, to the... Sorry, draft. I
1: misunderstood your question. I thought you asked just which county the suit was filed in. Yeah, 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 The defendant was the state of Utah for passing the law. Yeah, the
0: law. Okay, that makes sense. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's a state statute. Okay,
0: and so the state attorney general is basically defending it. Yes. Okay, interesting. And so what what happened? You filed the lawsuit. Did they come out guns blazing and say, we're going to defend this and fight this tooth and nail? I mean, they deposed you... It seems to imply that they're investing some resources into challenging this and fighting this.
2: Oh, yeah. They definitely invested a lot of resources into fighting it. I mean, this stretched out, what was it, Jeremy? Close to two, year, two years?
1: I think it was about two years. It was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Two
0: years is really short for civil litigation. <laughs> I mean, but this
1: was even before the district court ever handed down. Handed it, and it down. this was on a motion yeah. for summary judgment. never went to trial. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Two years is a long time to, just to get a motion for summary judgment, I would say.
0: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, because yeah. normally even the discovery process was, it could take two, three, four years. Um, yeah, so it, it really depends on how how complicated the case is and how invested the parties are. And so, did you do you know if you asked the state of Utah for any discovery? I guess there wasn't a lot of discovery necessary because your argument was mainly just a legal argument. It didn't have to do with any particular facts, um, right? It was just. Yeah, No, I mean,
2: and a lot of like what our side was able to use was just like public record. It was what the legislators were saying when they were talking about this bill becoming a law. You know, like when they were advocating for this bill, that was all information that our side could use to show how unconstitutional it was. So that was all already public record, didn't really need to do much to get that information.
0: So what did they ask you in this deposition? Do you remember... Oh, what, it was all following? over the place okay.
2: um yeah, I mean, it was I had yeah, I had never been through a process like that before I was told you know to expect some questions not to be super well formed formed or yeah. like be kind of obscure. he I remember he would start going off on tangents kind of trying to like some like gotcha questions about. The ALF or about mm-hmm. how like, oh, well, don't you know, if you go into those facilities, you're you're potentially going to kill all those animals because you don't know what you're bringing in sure. with you. And uh, you should security. be wearing, like, I know. Yeah. I know you're they very familiar with these shit. things. Yeah. Yes, they, they always, always say, say these say things. And the industry, you know, he had obviously talked to these, you know, industry insiders to understand mm-hmm. what to question me about, which was. Also, I was like, why does this is not relevant to, to what yeah. I was doing I was at all? On a public sidewalk. Yeah, public sidewalk. Pub- but I still street. used it as an opportunity to say like how ridiculous it is and mm-hmm. how many people are going in and out of that building every day and sure. um already. But um yeah, it was a lot of I'm trying to think of other things. Oh, I think there that he also tried to ask questions about um other activism I do and bring up other activism I have done like when I was a student and had a student animal rights group up at the U which I mean it was not anything major to be honest but yeah just kind of trying to use a little bit of what felt like scare tactics to show that they knew a lot about me or something but yeah. Um, but yeah I mean it I it went really well because I frankly had not had that like in nothing that interesting for him to like dig up to be honest. I could be very truthful with him without feeling like I was going to, to say something that was going to be harmful to myself. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I mean, and relative to what my friends have experienced when they're deposed, mine was not that long. I mean, I think Hmm. it was a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: no depositions can easily last. I've had an all day deposition, for example. Yeah. I think mine even went into a second day when a turkey ranch sued me. Um, yeah, one of the things I think people don't appreciate about our legal system is how much more expansive, and therefore, honestly, arduous civil litigation can be, while there isn't a risk of incarceration, because discovery can be so much more expansive, and because partly because people's freedom isn't at stake. Judges often give lawyers a lot longer leash in what they want to do. You can get hauled into a deposition where you are sworn under an oath and you are legally required to attend that you can be asked to testify for a day, two days, sometimes even a week. I mean, I, I, I've heard of depositions. I've been a part of depositions that last for weeks. On the other hand, they're also an incredibly powerful tool for activists who know how to use civil litigation well, because it means when we sue, you know, actually, this just happened with, <laughs> this is not necessarily an activist that I like, but do you know who Alex Berenson is? Mm-mm. No. So Alex Berenson is, he's a New York Times investigative reporter, retired and started writing some fiction, but he's become famous over the last couple of years because he's an anti-vaxxer. He's not like a complete kind of ridiculous anti-vaxxer in the sense that he tries to look at the science and he just has sure. a very strong contrary view on the effectiveness of the vaccines and how dangerous COVID is. And his most famous and infamous claim is that the COVID vaccine has cost more lives than COVID itself potentially, um, which I don't think there's any evidence for, for the record, but it's his belief. Um, and he's the only person in history who has been banned by Twitter and through legal action... Uh, had himself reinstated in a lawsuit, and the reason he did this was because he he filed a civil complaint against Twitter, and then ended up subpoenaing all the high level executives at Twitter, like Jack Dorsey. Mm. I think he even subpoenaed some of Twitter's partners. And they wanted
1: know. to moot his claim.
0: Well, basically, they wanted to make sure that they could not be forced to to be in a deposition. So if they and, reinstate
1: him, he has no claim. Exactly. So and So it just it. and so
0: they just reinstated him because they didn't want to have all their executives get hauled in deposition. And Twitter fought tooth and nail to get these subpoenas quashed and to, to try and convince the judge they didn't have to show up. But because it actually, he's a fairly prominent Twitter user and it did actually reach the highest level of, of Twitter's corporate offices, you know, the judge said no. I mean, he has compelling evidence that these executives were intimately involved in the decisions to ban him. So to the extent we're going to ask if there's a First Amendment claim, even a contractual claim, because every time you sign in one of these social media services, there's all these like, Contractual language you don't even look at, it just has like terms of use. And he was making some fairly sophisticated arguments that there's a contractual violation and a First Amendment violation. Because in California, where he brought this litigation, oh, sure. the First Amendment applies to corporate spaces too. Um, you may know this case, the you know prunyard? yeah, Pruneyard. So, even if it's a private, privately owned space, if it's still a public forum in the sense they invite people in the public to use it, as Twitter is, there are some limited. First Amendment protections under the California Constitution. And he was making this argument. But ultimately, it didn't even get litigated just because he was able to successfully not even depose, but just convince a judge to prove the subpoena to depose these executives. And they immediately just caved. (laughs) Like, we give up. And so, you know, um, civil litigation is an underutilized tool. I think you understand how important this is. And you do, too, now after this case. But... You know, the criminal cases are important. You know, legislation is important. Advocacy and education is important. But civil litigation can be an incredibly powerful tool for activists who know how to use it well. So Alex Parence, unfortunately, is one of them. Okay, so Pete and ALDF reach out to you. You file the claim. Actually, before we go there, this was kind of a difficult case for the animal rights movement to bring. And I don't know how involved you were, but I had another guest on the podcast, someone you know, I think, Justin Marceau. Tell me about how much flack he got, <laughs> and the other lawyers got for even bringing this claim. Were you exposed to that at all? did Did you feel any of the pressure to not bring this claim?
2: I actually didn't. not at the time when it was happening. not and and fortunately, the I think Justin and Matthew and the other attorneys involved are, kind enough to kind of shield me from that maybe they didn't even tell me that that had been happening or what was happening to them for you know even uh wanting to take this and i you know i i learned later some of some of the flack that they were getting personally i also learned that there were other like local attorneys who had you know said something about how they that I shouldn't be a plaintiff on the case and that I could, you know, also hamper their efforts or something to that effect. And, um, you know, I'm I'm very grateful that they didn't listen to them and that they saw me for having bringing a value to the case and showing how how these laws are used to stifle speech um, and and to just like really make the case stronger. Because when the judge issued his decision, I do think the fact that I was involved and he could hear what happened in my story, it did give like a really good, you know, part of the decision to talk about that. Um, But I'm also glad that there, you know, there are groups like ALDF and PETA who are willing to go out on a limb and, and bridge with grassroots activists and have faith that they aren't, you know, loose cannons who might ruin their case or something. And they Mm -hmm. like had enough faith in me that I could be, of value and that um and that this was an important case to fight and we can't just assume we will lose all the time. I think there's a there's a really bad kind of default setting for especially some of the frankly like larger organizations who are afraid to fight and they're the ones who have the most Most resources resources to do the fighting. And um so I yeah, it it certainly really helped it really gave me a, a very um, positive and strong, you know, impression for ALDF and PETA to be willing to work with grassroots folks and and to be willing to to you know say to other folks who are disagreeing with them that like you know stick to their guns and say like we got to try to fight it like what the what's the alternative? Just letting this lie like that's mm-hmm. not an alternative. We can't just let these laws just take over every state in the country. I mean, Utah is one of the biggest. Animal agriculture states in the country. We and we have more mink farms than anywhere in the country. Like we like animal abuse is happening in every form in this state by mm-hmm. incredible numbers. We can't just write off the whole state as a movement. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a huge disservice to animals and, and to the future of the movement. It, to just, you know, lie down anytime we think that a state is, you know, too too hard to deal with that just yeah it's just not it's not sustainable and it's not it's not a winning strategy you know
0: what i heard was two things were concerning lawyers in the movement and pushing them away from this case and causing them to put a lot of pressure on the lawyers who decided to take it one was the jurisdiction they just thought this is a bad jurisdiction let's start it in a more friendly jurisdiction at least a purple place you know if not a blue state let's Let's not go into a completely red state. (laughs) Let's find a purple state. Something like North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina is a little more split. And especially its appellate courts and Supreme Court are actually relatively progressive because the state at the state level is fairly progressive. At the local level, there's a lot of counties. And because of gerrymandering, the legislature in North Carolina is very skewed to agriculture on the right. But Utah is very different from that. I mean, Utah is like other than Salt Lake City, it's bright red. But, you know, my take is the same as yours. That makes it even more important to fight. I mean, these are the places where the most abuse is happening. If we don't fight here, where are we going to fight?
1: And some sometimes people can be surprised at attitudes yeah. even in red Absolutely. parts of the country. I mean Including it, in this case. Well, and look yeah. at what happened in 2020. We had a, a, a Prop 6, a ballot initiative in Millard County, Utah, which mm-hmm. went for Trump, you know, 80-20. Yeah. We had a, an ordinance on the ballot there to completely ban pig CAFOs, mm-hmm. which is pig factory farms. And it, you know, just... Barely lost. lost the yeah. vote was like 50.1 to 49.9%.
0: Yeah, after considered effort by Smithfield to push against it. Oh, too. yeah. I mean, like you a know, huge the, multinational corporation coming in this tiny county. They had it probably full, has like 10,000, 20,000 people in Millwood County. It's not a huge county.
1: Yeah, it's very small. Very That's small. probably about right. It's a very small county. And um, you know, they there's a very small paper there. Mm-hmm. And Smithfield and the Utah Farm Bureau had a full page ad running in every issue of the paper for like months before the election. They had all these people they sent there to do little town halls. They were pouring resources to try to defeat this ordinance. Yeah. Meanwhile, in our own movement, I can tell you that, you know, I was reaching out to some of the big groups like Mercy for Animals saying, hey, you know, could we get a little bit of support mm-hmm. for this campaign on the pro side? You know, mm-hmm. we 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 put out a mailer, our tiny Utah Animal Rights Coalition, we sent out a mailer to every resident in Millard County, yeah. urging them to vote yes on six um but you know there there are a lot of groups out there that have many more resources than us and i consistently did hear from groups just like you're saying like oh uh, you know this is a lost cause this is you know a mm-hmm. deep rural county in red utah and um, you know, I think if people wouldn't have had that attitude, maybe we could have got those extra 230 votes and put this over the finish line.
0: Yeah, if even and, one and of even those we, organizations had turned in your favor, you, maybe we yeah. would have been able to get over the finish that's line. That's right. Yeah, and and you know what? And even if we didn't,
1: was. maybe we would have laid the groundwork to win next time. Uh, absolutely. Sometimes you have to lose a few times before you win. When? No, that's usually um, the case. That's yeah. right. And so you know, it's it, but I, I I think there is you know just like you're both getting at, I think there can be yeah. a bit of a defeatist mindset. Yeah. Um. That that's really problematic. Yeah, I think
2: defeatist, and it's also. Like a really, like you said, a, a misunderstanding of these red states, too. Like, I, and, you know, I've lived in red states my whole life. I grew up in rural Wyoming. And after my case, you know, after the criminal case was, you know, the charges were dropped and it was becoming a viral story, I can't tell you how many, uh, like, of my former. uh uh, people i went to school with people my mom was friends with and cody wyoming reaching out to me and saying like i heard about your case and what happened to you is crazy and now i kind of want to look into this like what Mm -hmm. were they like they clearly must be hiding things like that was a way to like open up their eyes to the issue for one thing but they also just saw this like even you know like people who are like cowboys from my home state were like what happened to you was messed up and that you know i was getting invited onto the most like right-wing radio stations to talk about really? this and they were 100 percent on my side for yeah. like the civil liberties thing so i think that a lot of these big groups too you know they you know they kind of focus their their staff and their efforts they're yep. mostly in places like la they don't mm-hmm. really that's have the problem a thorough understanding of what's happening in these red states they kind of see what the media tells them these people in red states are like, but they don't really have a fun. They're not, they're not with these people often. They're not friends with people who are Republicans. They are not like out mixing with these people. And when you live somewhere like Utah, yeah, like a lot of, you know, our city is more blue, but it's still like, if you live here, you are a lot more in tune with what's happening in um, kind of these communities and have a, a better sense, I think. And it's, you know, it's, can be hard to convince people that it's not everything that they're they're seeing you know through their that, through their lens from LA. <laughs> I, I think
1: that's exactly. I think that a lot of people who work for these animal groups frankly build up caricatures in their minds. Yeah, 100%. of what hundred of what people are like in these red areas and also that, that it's way more monolithic mm-hmm. um, than it is. And you know I mean you think of almost every animal rights organization out there, every large one. Where are their offices or where are they headquartered? It's LA, yeah, Washington DC. DC. Uh, San Francisco, yeah. and you know, and they're all there. It yeah. seems like they're all in those places. These are like the bluest, you know, and 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 there there's no focus on um, creating a diverse workforce in terms mm-hmm. of this dynamic on yeah. this axis of like getting more people from red areas um, or from rural areas
0: who know these areas,
1: you know, who who know these communities. That's that's definitely a big problem.
0: So I don't I don't think it's even just diversity across geographic lines. I think even, and this gets me to my second point for why I think lawyers in the animal rights movement were so against your case, which is they just don't like the grassroots that much. The non-pro- nonprofit sector is, even within a city like San Francisco, sure. a, elite elite, a pretty elite stratum of society. And this has increasingly become true as big money philanthropy is driving so much of traditional nonprofit activism. It's, it's not... Tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of people on the street who are really in tune with how the people are feeling and thinking and seeing the problem firsthand, whether it's police brutality, mass incarceration, homelessness, drug usage, or animal rights. It's not that people are actually seeing and dealing with issues on a day to day basis. It's like some billionaire donor has some, has some conceptual you know, motivation or theory, and that's often completely unmoored from any actual experience or facts or data who just wants to do a certain thing because it's consistent with his ideology. I mean, a lot of this just, like, I hate to use this term because it's a term that's totally overused, but there's a huge amount of neoliberal kind of approach to activism driven by billionaires whose corporations are very neoliberal. They think about markets. They think about buying and selling things. They think about yeah. audiences in this very mass sense. as just these, these big buckets instead of realizing there's a lot of nuance to situations. And while Millard County might be a very, very red county, a lot of those red people might really hate factory farms just because they stink. And yeah, they're right next to exactly. the homes. And, and the person who led that initiative in Millard County was not a blue person from Salt Lake City. Right. It was a red resident of Millard County named Steve Maxwell. Both, who, both, I think all of us know him. You know him yeah. too, right? Yeah. Who's yeah. a great guy. Yeah, he's and a great. And he guy. disagrees with us on a lot of issues fundamentally, but he was the driving force behind this. And an animal rights actor who doesn't appreciate that there could be this guy who's a right wing libertarian Mormon, you know. Patriot in a way that makes you and I a little bit uncomfortable, but you know, but he was fighting hard against factory farms in a way that you and I totally can't understand. Isn't it interesting that he
1: was more willing to work with us in a very genuine, sincere way
0: than big than than
1: nonprofits in our own movement? What a statement! Exactly.
2: And he also like I mean, I even I even saw some of my own like prejudices or like at least my biases and how I would have like. Painted the idea of Steve Maxfield before I actually met him. When I met him, he ended up being like maybe the most strategic person I've ever met mm. involved. In fighting animal agriculture, and he's not an animal rights activist. I had never met he when we first met him and went into his house. He brought out these binders of research he had done on Smithfield. He had a whole one on. He knew he knew and remembered more about my ag gag case than I did. He knew (laughs) all the dates. He knew all the charges. He knew everything. Like his office was
1: like a war room.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I really felt that
1: way. He brought out these big plats of maps, and he's like, "We're gonna do this." And I mean, I was like, "Man, we need to we need this kind of energy in the Uh movement." Yeah.
2: He knew where they were looking to build. He knew where they were already starting to like lay the groundwork for building. He had done so much deep research. And that's the kind of thing that it is so hard for us in the movement to find anyone willing to try to do the like deep kind of research you need. That's not just it it was it's not the glory work. It is not the fame. Nobody Nobody in the movement outside of, you know, p- maybe the people in this room even mm-hmm. know who Steve he Maxfield is. is. And yeah. he was like, he almost achieved like what would have been an incredibly incredible historic victory. thing for the whole country if he managed to make it so that no CAFOs, no pig CAFOs could be built in his county. How incredible of like a precedent would that have been? And and how how amazing was it that it was even like considered sure, and yeah, almost one? I mean, that's that's incredible. And it is like... I, I think that the movement's tendency to go with, like, what these billionaires think we should do and what we can, like, try to, like, buy change to happen. It's just a convenient thought that we can, like, have power by a couple people. But, mm-hmm. like, you know, history has shown that it takes, like, collective energy and a lot of people power. And, like, really you have to do that in local spaces. We can't just do that from where the big groups are headquartered. Yeah. That's not going to create nationwide change animals and so to be missing out to not tap into the grassroots and not support grassroots movement is a huge missed opportunity for the movement and i I definitely think more grassroots efforts need to be supported not not only in the animal rights movement i think it's a problem with like across the board on the left something that um the right kind of tends to do better and Mm -hmm. maybe we can learn learn from some of those efforts that they do they do actually tap into like the local scene very well and very strategically in a way that we just seem to to not really invest in much anymore, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Koch brothers, for example, sadly, they did an extraordinary job of harnessing the wealth not to basically distance themselves from the grassroots or detach themselves from the grassroots to facilitate the growth of the grassroots movement that, I mean, at this point has almost gotten out of their control because <laughs> I don't know if the Koch brothers would support where the Tea Party has gone, but... I don't know if the Tea Party exists. I mean, it was definitely a spontaneous grassroots movement, but it was funded by groups like FreedomWorks, which was based on Coke by the money. But the billionaires on the left tend to want to work in corporate boardrooms and 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 hotels and, you know, conferences including famous academics and celebrities instead of getting their hands dirty with people like Steve Maxfield, or even you, you know? Cuz yeah. you're not some celebrity, you're not going to join them at a fancy meal in San Francisco. You're out there taking photographs at a slaughterhouse. You're actually making me kind of sad because you know what happened to Steve's (laughs) wife, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so we had a lot of loss, but she died too. But we should—I should be in touch with him. I should have actually tried to hang out with him this time because you know he's offered me some support over the years as I approach my case, and and I know he still cares about the issue, even though he's gone through some very serious personal loss. Okay. So uh, let's let's get back to the original story that I pulled you off of, though. So you you get deposed you know, are you feeling confident about the case after this deposition? How are you feeling about the case in the aftermath of the filing of the lawsuit?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I I was feeling pretty optimistic. I thought that um, even some of the early things that happened with the judge, like when, you know, their side was trying to say none of us had standing, and um, they did say that some of the, the journalists didn't have standing, if I remember right, but, you know, what they had said about, like, myself and— PETA um you know having standing I thought it was really strong so I thought there was some good early kind of moments but I mean it was still really hard to know what would happen but I had a lot of confidence in the lawyers on the team like some of the smartest people I know um and and so I had you know a lot of I felt like cautiously optimistic I guess and you know we had seen uh you know Idaho's ag-gag law that they challenged PETA and ALDF challenged um you know, was victorious too. So there, there started to be some good signs that this, this can happen. Idaho is obviously a red state as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, I did continue to get those kinds of messages from, from people in my past, like from, you know, like kind of from the right and from even, even people who, uh, you know, are in kind of animal abusing industries that were supportive at, at least on the principle. And so I was still, Cautiously optimistic that that good decision would come, hmm. which, you know, it it obviously it, it eventually did. And the judge did strike down Utah's gag law as unconstitutional and issued a really great uh, decision, long decision that even even cited things about, you know, like cited some previous investigations done by groups like HSUS and talking about like mm-hmm. what is revealed in these yeah. cases, which I thought was really interesting that. You know, the judge even had some of like describing the animal suffering in there. Um, That that took me by surprise. I didn't. Yeah, I read
0: like an animal rights opinion. I still think it's probably the best opinion by a federal judge I've seen on animal rights. The other point that I
1: thought was pretty interesting was the discussion about there was an HSUS investigation that led to this enormous recall of beef because it Mm -hmm. showed unsanitary conditions. It was Hallmark, right? I think that's right, and and that recall, um, by the way, heavily affected many school districts in Utah. Mm. Hallmark was a supplier to like some of the largest school districts in Utah, and um, you know, so they were serving this this beef to children in school, and you know, children are some of the most susceptible to E. coli, which is what they were worried about. So, I mean, you know, when you put that on the the scale of the risk benefit here, like the fact that this law would allow, you know, producers to cover up food contamination, yeah, you know, it's 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 pretty, you know, pretty disgusting. Yeah. yeah,
2: and even the same slaughterhouse that I, you know, took the photos outside of the Dale Smith slaughterhouse, when we started looking into them after this happened, um, it, w- it had just been like a few months before I had been outside, you know, taking photos from the street, that they had had to recall something like 60,000 pounds of mm-hmm. meat. They and, and they also, within like the few years before I did this, maybe just a couple years before, one of the the staff, someone who was working at the slaughterhouse, was killed at the slaughterhouse in an accident operating the same machinery I I saw them using to to take a down cow out. That kind of machinery had killed one of their um, workers there, and you know it was like OSHA find them some tiny little fine. It was yeah. n- nothing compared to what they make, and so. It seemed. I mean, when I read those things, I was like, maybe that's why they were like so angry with concerned me taking, about you taking photos. photos. It like, wasn't even the animals. It was the Yeah, fact maybe that they didn't even really were, realize what I was yeah. concerned about in that moment because I didn't know about their recent history with, you know, tainted me and with worker safety issues. Um, you know, I I think there's yeah even more good reason to be looking very carefully at these places.
0: Yeah, the statistics depend a lot on how you count how dangerous a job is, but almost every list of the most dangerous jobs in America will include slaughterhouses. And surprisingly, I think slaughterhouses are significantly more dangerous, for example, than acting as a law enforcement officer. Yep. You know, just because yeah. on a daily basis, like law enforcement generally doesn't actually have to use violence on a day-to-day basis. It's not killing anybody. I mean, many cops will tell you when they have to, to shoot somebody, it's it's like a once-in-a-lifetime or maybe a few times-in-a-lifetime event. In a slaughterhouse, like the one you were taking photographs at, they're putting bolt guns in cows' heads over and over and over again. You know, yeah. like the, the book by Timothy Patrick says, every 12 seconds. Every 12 seconds, there's lethal force being used against an animal that is 2,000 pounds. Right. One of those hits your hand, hits your shoulder, God forbid, hits your head, you're gone. Right. Just like they are, because our skulls are a lot weaker than theirs. Yep. And we're a lot smaller than they are. And all those implements of devastation can be used against us, too. And this has been true since something Sinclair with the jungle exactly. you know, 120 years ago. You're right about, even back then, with the technology not nearly as sophisticated and as violent as what we have today, workers' arms getting cut off and getting pushed into the meat, you know, people drowning in acid, all these awful things happening. And he was seeing these things and saying, somebody's right about this, and he did. The sad part of that story, though, is the very law that was passed after Upton Sinclair wrote *The Jungle*, the Meat Inspection Act. Do you know what the resolution of the Hallmark case was in California, and how that turned against the animal rights movement? No, I don't know if I do. Okay, so Hallmark was this terrible case, one of the probably the most famous slaughterhouse investigations in history because they found all these down cows being dragged around. I remember and that. They used. And it was the largest recall of beef, I think, in American history. And the flat house got shut down because of this huge recall. (laughs) Yeah, do you remember all that? And, and, you know, I mean, for the most part, American consumers think this is a big victory and food safety advocates think this is a really big victory. But they don't know what happened next. And this is why it's important for us always to build systemically and why it's important to build a grassroots power base behind these campaigns and not just get these one off victories in the media or even in a court case. Because if that happens and everyone goes home, You lose the forest for the trees. And what people don't know about the Hallmark case is shortly thereafter, you know, it wasn't just this one slaughterhouse that was selling down cows to people. It wasn't just this one slaughterhouse that was threatening the safety of the food supply and the welfare of the animals, because it is a fucking awful life to live in a feedlot. But if you are sick and you are weak in a feedlot like Harris Ranch, and then you're taken on a transport truck when you're barely able to walk to a slaughterhouse, that is hell on earth you know, because you're not getting food, you're not getting water, you're confined in a tight truck with an enormous amount of heat in this long distance. So the state legislature tried to pass a law banning down cow slaughter in the state of California. And what happened was the very law that was passed in, I think, 1906 to supposedly protect consumers from this sort of thing, the Meat Inspection Act, because after Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, everyone in the country was saying, oh my God, someone should be expecting slaughterhouses. We need to be protected. And so there is a law that was passed that included in it uh, a provision giving the Department of Agriculture the right to regulate um, kind of slaughterhouses and the right to regulate um, disclosures and consumer disclosures, basically fraudulent marketing of meat products. And that very law uh, that was passed in 1906 to protect consumers in roughly 2007, 2008, after the California legislature passed a down cow law, it was used to strike down the California law on preemption grounds, saying that this law gives the US Department of Agriculture the exclusive authority to regulate slaughterhouses. The state is not allowed to touch this area. And so, and because the USDA doesn't want to do anything and doesn't think this is a big issue, you're not allowed to pass this law. Isn't that remarkable? Wow. This law hundred years ago that was intended to protect consumers has now been used to defend slaughterhouses right after the entire nation had been obsessed with the dangers of the food supply from downed cows. But because there was no sustained movement behind this, no one paid any attention to it. Yeah. Like, People, I was like... Probably
1: the groups had moved on. I mean, the thing yeah, the you groups do, had moved on. It wasn't, you, it wasn't, you could a, go into the federal law and amend it and add a non-preemption clause. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That probably would have been the next logical step. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I think the case could have been effectively litigated, but it was just, honestly, I know you've talked a lot about how nowadays... No one wants to do anything unless they're getting social media attention. And there wasn't that social media back in the mid to late early. So I think but my point is, even back then, it was like this is systemically important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is a fight that we we thought we should win because we had just, you know, as a movement won this big victory on Hallmark and everyone was talking about down cows. But the moment like our donor base and the media was no longer excited, we just kind of dropped it. And I saw this myself too, around the same time period with Foie Gua. Where everyone was super excited about a campaign, and it, it's almost like political movements are like fickle children. you know we we can't sustain ourselves. and and I think but it's not really the movements because I think the people on the ground, especially who are working on these issues, do care. In many ways, I think it's the biggest and and, and most wealthy organizations that are the most fickle because they're constantly just jumping from one hot issue to the next instead of building like the long-term communities and political power. They need to make institutional change, so anyways, it's a distressing story, but it's an important one for people to hear about campaigns, because otherwise you could run a campaign that you think you won, but in the long term, you actually lost. So um, how do we win
1: in the long run, too though? We will win in the long. We run. We just barely used an ordinance that Amy and I worked pretty hard several years ago to get a ban on horse-drawn carriages in Salt Lake.
0: Yeah.
1: Salt Lake City passed that ordinance in 2014.: Yeah, it sat there all these years, and just earlier this summer. This guy showed up with his new carriage business, with horse carriages here in Salt Lake. And uh, we basically reached out to city officials and said, Hey, there's this guy doing horse-drawn carriages in Salt Lake City. There was this ordinance we passed eight years ago. He's got to knock this off. And it worked. Yeah, The city officials' enforcement office reached out to this guy and said, Get the hell out of our city. We have an ordinance here. So that was kind of a beautiful thing, I think, to see eight years ago all this activity Paying off in 2022. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And like my pessimism for like people in power is so low. I thought there was no way (laughs) it was going to be that easy. (laughs) (laughs) I thought my first instinct was like maybe the city told this guy, oh, it's okay. Those people went away. I was like, either the city's in on it or we're going to tell them and they're not going to care and we're Uh going to have to make them care all over again. But at least we have this good ordinance already done. We just have to make them enforce it now. I mean, I just, I did not think it would be as easy as like. Here's like sending an email with a report and the evidence that we had of this guy doing this and then them responding, you know, immediately saying, all right, we're going to take care of this. I'll tell you the one
1: reason that I think it did turn out that way is because we were a locally oriented grassroots group here. And we have had, you know, longstanding over the years, we've communicated with the mayor's office just earlier this year. Amy and I delivered a, uh, a bunch of food to the mayor's office to thank her for um, stopping the fireworks shows mm. because of the trauma it causes to animals. animals. Salt Lake sure. City didn't do any fireworks shows. So just a couple months ago, we were there praising the mayor because here we are, we live here. And so we have this kind of longstanding, you know, the mayor appeared at VegFest in 2019 to participate in a debate. in 2019 so now when we email the mayor about this horse carriage issue our name and our organization when when they see that in their inbox it's familiar to them yeah and that's that's the kind of thing that i think some of the national groups maybe don't fully appreciate
0: yeah you have credibility you're building institutional relationships yep and i think you can see on the ground the value of some of the smaller gestures like just you know delivering something to the mayor's office about fireworks oh i you know this very well every time
1: you visit we have many cupcakes Mm -hmm. uh and other treats filling our fridge
0: no absolutely and, and that sort of stuff is important and it, it might not be sexy on social media it might not get media headlines but it's building long-term power for the yeah. movement and and too often you know I think partly just because it's hard to see from that vantage point when you're looking at things from 10,000 feet you can't see on the ground what matters most and so a large national nonprofit that's mostly focused on its on its, on, its, on its budget you know just survival like we've got a 120 million dollar budget or a 50 million budget dollar budget what do our donors care about? You lose sight of kind of the mission critical things on the ground that could be happening that's because true. you're looking at things from ten thousand feet.
1: And there, there, there are there's economies of scale, and there's also diseconomies economies of, of scale. scale. Yeah. And that that part of that is what you're getting at there. Sometimes yeah. these groups get so big, and that you get a lot of kind of administrative bloat yeah. too. And that that's almost unavoidable to some degree. But yeah, there are things you can do to to try to mitigate it. But that's yeah. Yeah.
2: I also think like in to try to be devil's advocate for these groups too. I don't think it's like. Just because of their donor dollars and things, I I also think that it's hard, even for grassroots activists, frankly, to see to look at the ten thousand yeah. uh, feet high level to see what's going to happen, and and it it can be defeating to to have to like try to find the small victories going up to that point, sure. you know, like to like work on things that are like not going to make you feel like you're making huge momentum in the immediate friends it's hard to maintain and not burn out when you're not you know you know you're not making someone vegan in the moment you know you're not you know spending your days like convincing people to try vegan Mm -hmm. food which feels good in the moment because you're opening someone's eyes and it's right in front of you and it's like it's just it's personal when you're making that connection and that feels really great um and it is great i'm not trying to say that's not an important thing to do but in terms of solving animal suffering, like that's not how we're going to really win it ultimately, you know, but it, it's hard to work on the things that, you know, the, uh, just the smaller things of, you know, following up and being like just a, a pain for these city officials until they start realizing until they start, you know, like following through with what you're fighting for or whatever it is, like your, your ultimate goal. Um, I, and I think it's hard for, you know, the national nonprofits to also like, see that and, and to see ways to keep their staff motivated. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing, like at the grassroots and the national level that you have to find, I I think there's ways around that. I think we have to find ways of like, like realizing the small victories, getting us to the big ones. You know, I think we have to focus on like, what do those small victories really look like and how can we celebrate it in a way that like our, if you're, you know, employing people, it's your staff or it's your activists can see that this is like, An actual huge step in in that progress to the big goal, um, because it can be, yeah, really defeating when the small things aren't working. You Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Do you think
0: that problem's getting worse in movements and in society? I think it is. Or do you think it's just always been a problem? I mean, it's always been a problem to some extent because a lot of the the complaints I've raised about the movement extend back fifteen years. And again, not to say that there aren't lot of cases where we have won very important institutional victories that show sustained power. I mean, the, the, the horse carriage campaign in Salt Lake city, the first stuff we've done in California, I mean, oh, yeah, that's are incredible. very, very important cases where we've right. transformed entire systems. And that's the key thing is once you get the institution behind you, you almost have to, don't have to do the work. Yeah. You know, they kind of do Agreed. the work for us, which is amazing. Yep. But do you think the problem has gotten worse? And how many years you've been an animal rights activist for 20 years now? Close to yeah, it. Yeah, so we're probably. about the same. Yeah, like sixteen. We have the both same activist age. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It does kind of seem. I I think maybe it's getting worse. It's also just evolved in a way. Like even when groups are trying to trying to think on like big bigger scales, you know, especially the national groups, they were thinking when we're looking at like animal, you know, animals raised for their flesh. It's like they we're focused on things like, okay, we need to at least get rid of the cages in these egg laying factory farms. And then we see like, Oh, that's actually like, that's not great. It's not, it's arguably not even in the best welfare for the birds. Mm -hmm. Um, let alone it's not making less animals suffer and be killed for no reason. You know? So I think it, it seems like the movement in terms of, especially for animal agriculture, I feel like it's a little lost in terms of thinking like, what's our, what is like that, those like strategies to get us to that ultimate goal. It's such a, such an enormous problem. I I, I think that's like, it seems like it's, it, it feels like the movement's a little lost in that, but at the same time, the movement doesn't really focus on many animal issues other than animals raised for the food system. And so, um, I, I think that's also a missed opportunity too to start really getting like huge, like big, big scale kind of, um, meaningful and impactful victories for animals but i don't yeah. know A- and just the move away from the grassroots mm-hmm. too like grassroots animal rights activism is is just tiny compared to even when i started and i know it was even bigger before i started being an activist yeah. there's there's it's really hard to like have successful grassroots movements right now it seems yeah from my perspective i don't know what what you all think though
0: Grassroots movements rise and fall over the decades, and but it, what is unequivocally clear if you look at history, and not just in the animal rights movement, the environmental movement and the gay rights movement, is when the grassroots is strong is when most change happens. When the grassroots is weak, it doesn't matter how much money you have behind it, how many corporate organizations you have pushing a cause, it just doesn't get anywhere. Whether it's gay marriage or environmentalism, I mean... That the 1960s and 70s, when the environmental movement was just really just blowing up, and you had an anti-nuclear movement that was engaged in all these direct action protests, that's when we passed some of the most important legislation, like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. So, the big systemic institutional change we wanted came from the grassroots power. Same thing with gay rights. You know, you had lots of big nonprofits doing things in the early to mid 2000s. It wasn't until actually after 2008, uh, because of what happened in California, you know, with Prop 8, a, a ballot initiative that banned gay marriage, that Causes grassroots resurgence, people in their own ordinary communities, and and really just started organizing, saying, hey, this is threatening us. This is scary. We got to do something about this. And I think the same is true of the animal rights movement. It's kind of gone up and down, but it's been strongest when the grassroots is strong. But one thing I'll say that's kind of ironic is you'd normally think that, you know, these these wealthy people, executives, big corp organizations would have a more long-term view of things. But I think it's the opposite. I think if if you look at kind of the big, huge nonprofit organizations, <laughs> the big donors, they're usually thinking about the most short-term gains and don't seem to have much of a long-term strategic mindset about how we're going to change the world for animals. Well, it's a grassroots, especially when the grassroots is in more deliberative stages and there's a lot of openness and discourse and discussions and conferences where we've seen the most innovation happening. And in animal rights, for example like I've I've talked to a lot of the big nonprofits and nonprofit donors and there's very little insight into what are we going to do next after cage-free? I think you're right that even the immediate short-term games for animals are massively oversold, and I've written extensively about this, about how mortality rates in cage-free egg farms are usually anywhere from four to sometimes 10x higher, and mortality is just one measure. But the way these animals are dying is awful, too. They're usually eating each other alive, because vent pecking and fighting happens all the time when animals are still given about a square foot of space each. They just don't have any cages to protect them from the other animals. But even if you didn't think that's the case, and some people probably do have a good faith disagreement and think it does improve the animals lives in the short term there's no long-term strategic mindset and I think that's partly because once it becomes bureaucratized people lose the inspiration to dream they're just kind of doing their job and my job is to get the metric for my donor so I can send in the report to explain the progress we made instead of thinking actually what is it why am I here and what is it that I really want to achieve and how do I walk back from the thing I'm trying to achieve to what I'm doing today people don't think like that in nonprofits but in the grassroots that's the entire point we're here we're not here to fill out a report or to make sure we make revenue. We're here because we want to change the world. And so it drives more strategic thinking and innovation. And I think that's been true, not just in activism. I think it's true even in business. This is why startups in the Bay Area are so much more innovative than big corporate organizations. Because a lot of the startups don't even start as organizations focused on making money. They start as organizations that are trying to change the world. And money is just kind of one of the vehicles they need to do to get there. And they become corrupted over time. And that's how we get Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how did it feel when you won what'd you do did you celebrate did you go have a party and who told you just tell me the story how you found out that you had won this, oh. this, this case in Utah the ag guy case I
2: mean okay I'm trying to remember exactly how I found out I don't remember how I found out by the way how
0: many plaintiffs were there was it it wasn't just you it was you PETA some I journalists
2: like was, I think there and, do you remember how many ended up staying on I feel like it was like four
0: only four. Wow. Because
2: Will Potter um, didn't have standing. That's
1: right. I I remember just you, Pete, and LDF. I mean, okay, there might have been three. there might have been another one, but yeah. those are the three that I remember.
2: Yeah. So three of us, and yeah, I mean, I think we did just have like a small a small celebration. Yeah. How did um, you
0: find out? Was it an email? Was it a phone call? And who called you?
2: I'm trying to remember. I think <laughs> that remember. I found out from... I
1: don't from... remember either. I mean, it was in the news really quickly. Yeah, I,
0: I saw the NPR article, um, and I, I immediately read the opinion, and I was blown away. I just thought it was a Republican <laughs> judge, too. That was the thing that was... Actually, no, no, no. I... It was an Obama appointee. No. Judge Shelby. Yeah, look it up. He's a Republican. He might have been appointed by Obama, but he's registered as a Republican historically. Oh, I'm pretty I sure. Guess, I guess I
1: don't know what his yeah. voter registration is. If
0: yeah, I think mean. he might have been appointed to something by Republican originally, and then eventually huh. maybe he was appointed by Obama. Huh. There's something confusing about his history, but I'm pretty sure he was registered as a Republican. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he's known for being a particularly
1: conservative a judge. judge.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: But Yeah. I think, yeah. I think he's actually a really good judge. He's also, the judge I mean, that that struck, he's also the judge that struck down our state constitutional ban on gay marriage. Oh, wow. Well. And that
2: happened, yeah, before the gag case. So when and we, that
1: happened before the national ban on well, obviously wow. for okay. obvious reasons. Sure. So yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that was and that had happened before my case. So when we knew that that was that the was judge, a judge it was like, this okay, this judge. is a good sign. And
0: and you were hearing oral arguments. Were you attending the oral arguments on like so? For example, I think there was probably motion to dismiss on standing grounds, and there's oral argument. Did you did you go into court and were you were you 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 got the sense that he was. Kind of leaning in your side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. All well, the way through the case. For
2: for that and then yeah, yeah.
0: We yeah, we were there a couple times. Yeah,
1: okay. twice, I, I think. I, I just honestly remember being genuinely really impressed with him. Really? I don't I personally I didn't remember getting a sense of how he was leaning. Really? Um I just thought this guy was smart. I thought he was very smart and I thought he was taking a lot of time to get it right. Yeah. Um, he was asking a lot of like really like good questions. questions. Sure. Yeah,
2: he was wanting to go really deep into yes, like both sides deep. of the argument. Yeah, which he seemed like I, which seemed like a good sign I mean, yeah, he that's wasn't a good sign
0: in activist cases because the yeah. easier, the easier thing to do is always just dismiss the case, throw it out. You know, I'm in a case right now where I've been in a couple of cases now where the judges don't give us a lot of time, attention, <laughs> and yeah. don't explain things. But
2: yeah, yeah, no. It, so it, it definitely seemed like a good sign that he was trying to go deep into the, into both sides and really trying to understand the case well and take it seriously. And yeah, I think eventually like when, when the decision was made, I think it was my, my attorney, my attorney Stewart who called me and then it kind of like, yeah, it was a very, you know, quick kind of, yeah. Then yeah, the media wanted to, to learn about it and yeah, it was, um, yeah, having a lot of attention there. So you don't
0: remember how you responded? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I you mean, are? it was just
2: yeah. It was just it was a lot of excitement. It had sure. also been going on for forever. For yeah, it felt like. Did forever. you know the opinion
0: was going to come out around that time, or was it a huge surprise and shock when no, it came out? Because federal judges have a lot of discretion as to when they're going to issue their opinion.
2: Yeah, no, it had just kind of been sitting with them, and I yeah, I didn't know anything no about how the out. process works, and it's like okay, like it's been sitting on this for a while. Like how long does this usually take? <laughs> like what's going to happen next? Yeah. And just yeah, not even really understanding what was going to what was going to happen there. Uh-huh. Um yeah, I'm trying to remember all those details and I just like can't, but I yeah, and I remember yeah, it was it was just really exciting and it was just yeah, it just felt like one of those rare wins in a legal system and like a a win that took years of attorneys fighting and it you know and so that was just all incredible and then and Then eventually, you know, I started being like I started having a a little bit of fear of like, okay, well, our legislature is probably going to try to pass something new now. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. what are they going to do next time? Because our legislature here kind of has been known for this, even like when the city will pass something, you know, Salt Lake City will pass a good thing, like they'll pass, you know, a a ban on electronic billboards or something. And then Mm -hmm. the state legislature will pass something that says, you know, cities can't Pass laws about electronic billboards or whatever. So I was just like, okay, they're not going to take this without a fight. What's going to happen next. And I remember like kind of during the next legislative session, uh, my attorney Stewart had been paying attention and he called me one time to let me know that it had been discussed in like an agriculture committee meeting or something basically kind of like saying, you know, like, Oh, like kind of saying we want to bring something like this back, but like this bill back. And, um, at the time, like kind of straight away, they were like, we can't do this because last time it cost us so much money because we had to pay the legal fees. Yeah, they had to pay yeah. our, you know, attorneys legal fees because it had been a constitutional case. And so they just kind of immediately just dropped it and didn't try to pass anything else. Cause they were like, we don't want to have to deal with this. This is like a huge waste of, of money, of yeah. time and money if we try to pass this kind of thing. And so that was like a whole new feeling of victory too, when that happened, that it was like, okay, they really see, they can't just like keep crafting things that are against, con- you know, against the constitution and really trying to like come after animal rights people. Yeah. So. I
0: think there's been some genuine change too, even within the industry as a result of that decision. Yeah. That is, there's been some reflection by, I mean, an example of this, and obviously this is just one person, but Rick Pittman is an example. He's, he's a, Turkey farmer in the state of Utah. He owns, I think, the single largest turkey processor in the state of Utah, mm-hmm. and one of the largest in, in the nation. You know, I think it's in the top twenty, maybe, turkey processors. They do, I believe, it's three million every year, which is a huge number. Um, granted, not Butterball still, or, or Tyson, but very, very large numbers. And Rick is pretty against eye gag laws He thinks it just it, it suggests that we're trying to hide something in this industry, and we have to be more transparent. So. I, part of it was just probably strategic. They just thought this isn't worth the time and the effort. But part of it is there are people are getting picked off within the industry and probably within the legislature who are just saying to themselves. Kevin Daniels is another example. You know, the DA in, um, in Sanpete County who charged me. You know, I, I talked to him. I think he even said this on Radio West, and I'm not a big fan of these agog laws either. You know, I think there has to be more transparency in food system, and I'm prosecuting this guy, but it's not because he took the photographs. It's because of the two turkeys. And to his credit, he also said when he prosecuted us, this is not a case where I'm going to even see jail time. I'm just doing this because I think someone broke the law, and they should be punished for it, but it's not that big of a deal. It's, yeah. He treated it similarly to another, essentially, shoplifting case that he might prosecute. Yeah. And he ultimately did dismiss the case entirely, mm-hmm. to his credit.
2: I think it is like a really I, – I think that the, their industry is also – yeah, just really, like you said, they're being strategic. And when you like look at what's happening, like what has happened with ag-gag laws, you see how everyone under the sun is against these laws. Mm-hmm. And so I think they realize like, okay, maybe that wasn't a good move because now we have all these people – questioning us more and so another way that i've seen the industry responding is that they are trying to give the illusion that they're being transparent yeah. Yeah. and trying to say like oh like here like see we'll we'll publish these photos or videos of our farms ourselves, which a don't show the whole picture of what's happening when people do go in mm-hmm. you know and do investigations like more unexpectedly not trying to frame it in like the most absolute positive light like they are yeah but they're also trying to like twist the the language and like try to like say what's you know show what's happening they'll even show the things that when i see it i think it looks heinous but they're trying to to craft a narrative to to try to counter what people hear um, from a, like, you know, our perspective of like what's happening. So I'll see the dairy industry. They'll talk about when they take their babies away from their mothers within 24 to 48 hours. And they'll say like, oh, like, we're going to we're going to take the baby into a safe place mm-hmm. where they will be well cared for and get yeah. the proper nutrients they need. You know, they'll mm-hmm, try to like mm-hmm. frame it as being like, oh, they see like we need to to be more like honest we need to like show that we're honest with people so that Mm -hmm. they can like feel faith in what they're eating you know and and so they're just trying to like have this illusion of transparency that a lot of other animal abusing industries have done and so i think that's their new strategy now not not trying to hide things trying to like they're yeah, trying to desensitize falsehood. people to some yeah. degree too, yeah. I think. I yeah, mean that too. people
1: can get used to anything. Yeah. You know? I mean, it used to be people used to take their slaves into the public square to be whipped. Yeah. I mean, it is people you know, even large groups of people can witness horrific acts of abuse and act like it's normal. Yeah. So you I can inoculate to people to
0: atrocities. Yep. If you expose them to the the atrocity and put on a positive gloss to it. I mean, one of the best examples of this is after we op- released Operation Death Star, the VR video inside Circle 4 Farms at Smithfield. Did you see the VR video Smithfield made?
1: No, it's, I didn't uh, actually. It, That's hilarious. It almost
0: seems like a parody of our video. Okay. Like, it's like, it's so weird, but they released this, I think it was within a couple months of the release of our video. It was clear that they had invested a lot of money into this because they had VR cameras and everything. And they were saying, you can look in all directions just like in their video. And it, but it's just really creepy because it's clearly cleaned up. You don't see any dead pigs. One of the things they do that's really interesting too is like in our VR videos, we always try to make it clear that the individual expression and feeling of at least one individual. So we'd have a VR camera set up, but you would still be able to at least look at one pig. I remember that from your expression. talk at
1: VegFest a couple days ago. Yeah, it, it's
0: really yeah. important for us because it's 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 easy to get lost in a mass. Definitely. You know, it's like Stalin said, you know, a million deaths is a statistic, one life is a tragedy. So let's just focus on the million. As long as I slaughter a million and no one knows the story of one, we can get away with this sort of shit. And, and it's kind of, they do the same thing. They have a VR camera that's like at a high level. You can see all the pigs. You can't really tell exactly what's happening to each of them. You see that they're in crates and it's all in bright sunshine. You have like smiling, good looking people describing what's happening to you and saying, oh, this is for the safety of the pigs. They're so happy in here and we're so lucky to have it here. And, you know, the pigs are, are probably just being fed because you're not hearing the screaming because, you know, one of the horrible things about pig farming and the selective breeding we've done to pigs is they're always hungry and they always want to eat more. But you really can't give pigs as much food as they want to have, especially their breeding pigs, because they can't get pregnant, they develop all these terrible foot and ankle injuries, and so these pigs are constantly hungry and screaming. And that's kind of the first thing you hear in our Death Star video when we walk in, I think, is just like all these screams of pigs, because they think they're going to be fed. But they've obviously just fed their pigs, and they all seem very happy and content sitting in their two foot by seven foot crates. But there is something really bizarre about their use of transparency, and yeah, it shows you the power of narrative. You know, I mean, even facts that seem straightforwardly horrific, you really can twist people into thinking they're OK with the right sort of narrative.
2: Yeah. And and with the like like Jeremy said, with the desensitizing, you know, desensitizing people to this and showing them enough if it's like, OK, well, it's not going to work to keep it hidden anymore mm-hmm. because It's already out there. These, you know, groups across the country, like there have been just hundreds probably of investigations at this point, you know, from all sorts of individuals and groups. And it's like, that's not an opportunity. Like they've lost that. So now this is like kind of the only, like that's not even an opportunity anymore. They can't keep it hidden anymore. So this is kind of all they got now. And I mean, I I don't think that it's really working. I think that people are smarter and, you know, won't easily become desensitized, or I'd like to hope anyways. Um, but yeah, that seems to be the next thing they're trying.
0: I don't think it's going to work either. And I think I think even though this VR footage is heavily edited, and it's funny because they accuse us of selective editing and you know caricaturing their facilities, and they've done exactly the same for their VR video i've showed people actually what they've done is
1: way worse because you went in that building
0: on a random day on a random day yeah Mm -hmm. and and they had it choreographed and prepared and everything so but even even as nice as it seems just seeing all these pigs in crates when i've showed people smithfield's video they're like this is kind of macabre this is weird it's creepy and it almost makes it worse that they're trying to put a positive spin on and these are not vegans these are like people who eat meat who are watching this and saying damn this That's a like, lot of pigs crammed in a lot of tiny crates. you know this um, is how they raise food.
1: Lauren Lockie, who you know too, mm-hmm. Lauren and I got a tour of a dairy farm here. Mm-hmm. If you, do you remember that a couple years ago? Yeah yeah. Um, they actually are um, you know, I'll just say it, but they make Heber Valley artisan cheese. They're mm-hmm. known to supposedly be like a humane organic farm here in Utah. You can find them at the farmers' market. and um, it was like horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean it was so but they were we were being given a tour to work, led around. Yeah. Here's where we lock the mothers' heads in a stock, and their calves are born. And they, they, you know, and they said this in a good way, and in, maybe in some sick way, it sort of is. But they're like they never even see their baby because they mm-hmm. can't even turn around. We take their baby Oof. away right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's never even a bond to begin with. We take the baby away right away. And you know, we we literally saw like the stalks in the room where they do that all the time, and it wow. was just very haunting. And then we went into a room where they're the where they're milked. And um, again, this is a supposedly small farm, and, and and it probably is, relatively speaking. I think they had something like a thousand cows, mm-hmm. and um, but they still had in where they got milked. They walked into this little stall. I shit you not, and they had radio collar things that identified them, and it read you know which cow this was, you know through Bluetooth or something similar. And this um, camera came up out of the floor, and took an optical image of their udders. And then that camera went back down out of the floor, and then the milking machine came back up, and the robots attached the milking machines, wow. so b- based on the optical imaging of that camera, and, you know, they, they boasted to us that they were like, you know, we, we can go weeks without even ever having to step foot in these barns. Everything barns, is well, that automated. automated. Yeah.
0: It's creepy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's creepy what we're doing to living creatures on this earth.
1: Yeah, it really is. And they were all... We, and they're know, proud of this. And in their milking such a parlors, thing. they were all just standing in total filth. Yeah, I mean, just knee deep in filth, and they it was just like no big deal. They were just really. We could have been. We could have asked to see any corner of that farm, and they actually would have shown it to us. Yeah, I was shocked with their transparency, but it was a horrible place. And wasn't
0: this the place that you all found? I think Lauren saw like a calf. That's what prompted this whole that thing. That was just basically collapsing the ground starving to death. There was at least one who was actually
1: dead. Yeah. And just like had d- a decaying to yeah, yeah. There was a decaying body of a calf chained yeah. to a hutch. And then at least one other who was almost dead. Yeah. And she took pictures and we sent them to this farm and said, These are really troubling pictures yeah. and what do you have to say about this? And they responded almost immediately and were like, We're we love our cows. Come see them right now. And yeah. they arranged a tour and um I you know, I see them at the farmer's market almost every time we go. Yeah. And, you know, people think they're buying something humane and local. You know, local, that's my favorite How one. do they explain the dead nothing. calf
0: rotting to death on the ground of a hutch? Did they, they were even just to like, that? They, they kind of didn't,
1: actually. They were just like, that. that's a very rare thing, and you're right, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. They just said something
0: like that, so We honestly. love our cows, except the one we slowly allowed to starve to death in a yep. hutch that was about as big as her own body.
1: And also, it was like 100 degrees outside. It yeah. was so hot. Wow. And inside those hutches, it's got to be even
0: worse. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean... It's the it, middle of summer. The, the reality on any farm is as long as you're commodifying animals I, I've said this so many times but just a typical vet bill for any of these animals is going to far exceed the commercial value of the animal Absolutely. and so the odds at any of these animals and you can even go to a livestock veterinary class at any of the vet schools around the country and you know Crystal Heath who's the founder of Our Honor, Tristan Rosenberg who's testified on our behalf in many cases are both UC Davis trained vets who I think took some livestock courses they'll tell you the same Livestock vets do not know anything about treating individual animals. They're focused entirely on herd health, right? And so when an individual animal is sick and suffering, it's like a doctor, you know, who, if you came in and asked for treatment, said like, oh, I don't know how to treat you. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about you. I'm just looking at statistics for the entire population. Right. It's like going to an epidemiologist or something. Epidemiologist for like an urgent acute yeah. health crisis you're facing, and that's but that's the entire profession of the right. veterinary industry when it comes to livestock. So they just don't know how to treat these animals. So And when you're in that sort of system, individual living beings are going to suffer in unimaginable ways, like that calf who probably slowly wasted away, sick, and maybe died of dehydration, starvation, or some disease without any sort of care or alleviation of her suffering. Yep. Because you can't use painkillers either. You know? If you use painkillers, these animals are going, going to be put into the food system Nobody wants some painkiller in their milk or their meat. Especially um, if
2: it's an organic farm. If, especially
0: if it's an organic farm, yeah. which is one of the great tragedies of these organic facilities. And, and actually, I mean, some of the some of the animal welfare people I have the most confidence and faith in are kind of anti-organic for that reason, because there are times where you have to give an animal antibiotics. If you actually want to give an animal good life, if someone's suffering from pneumonia, they need some droxin, you know, like a pig on a factory farm, so... Uh, we've been going on for a while. So, what do you think you learned from that experience about how to create change that really lasts?
2: Um, I, don't, I, I mean, I think I learned several things. I I think that one of the first things I learned is that you just have to go out and actually do things. You have to just go out and and just go see what's out there. Go see what's in your backyard, and not be afraid to you know just to just get out there. You can't do all your activism just online or just mm-hmm. in like the same spot you go every week like yeah. you you have to try to like to think outside of the normal box and and you know hopefully you know whatever it is like that gets you inspired to go somewhere new that's that's like the first thing I learned because I had never even gone to this place right in my backyard before that led to all of this um you know a lot of people in the movement had thought like I must have done this intentionally because mm-hmm. I knew this would be a way to challenge it it was like Nope, <laughs> nope. Was not even yeah. thinking strategically. <laughs> yeah. There's an importance for thinking <laughs> yeah. strategically, but there's also an importance for just, just like doing shit. seeing what's out yeah. there. Just you going know, out this, and doing stuff. Yeah. yeah. This also led Lauren Locky and I went on a whole, you know, like week long trip where we were just going out in front of other farms uh, around the state just to, and we had no idea what would happen, but we we're like, we just want to see what what's we that? can see and. Mm-hmm. And it can really like deepen your commitment because you see what's going on in your community and you see the extent of the problems. You see the cows left for dead in their hutches. Um, and it just gives a new perspective on things that you don't learn otherwise, I think. So, I mean, that was one thing. But then also just, um, I, I think that, that bridge, like being a grassroots activist and working with national groups who have resources and who do believe in the grassroots i that was also a really important thing for me i hadn't worked you know i mean i worked a little bit with you know some of these groups just to like give me signs or whatever but really just like having a better stronger relationship with them was really um critical i think i there's no way i could have done all of this mm-hmm. on my own um and
0: can i give big shout out to peter and ingrid newkirk too for the the years that they've been in existence, because they are one of the largest animal rights organizations in the world, but they've also always supported the grassroots.
2: Yeah, yeah. They really have. In, they in have. a pretty
0: remarkable way. ALDF's commitments have been up and down. I'm going to call them out, but Carter Dillard, their former director of litigation, has did an incredible job, and I think he was the director of litigation at that time. He's left the organization now, and ALDF does much less grassroots activism now than they did back yeah, in 2012 and, and
2: 2013. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not familiar with that current situation, but yeah, yeah it definitely PETA's always was, been way. Yeah, PETA's always been, and it was... It was instantly that I called them, and they were willing to help pay for like, you know, the legal fees I might incur with the criminal charges. They were they were willing to help with that because you know they have faith faith in grassroots movements and saw what was happening and and knew how important it was. And I mean, what what an incredible load off of me to know that yeah. at least I'm not going to be you know i'm I'm about to just be doing AmeriCorps where I make ten thousand dollars a year. like I can't yeah, pay legal is, fees, you know, sure. like I yeah. c- it's hard enough to pay for like food on the table when you make ten grand in a year. like mm-hmm. that's not a living wage. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean that that was really incredible for sure. but yeah, i I also just think that we we have to to not be intimidated by these kinds of laws. We can't let them dictate we can't let laws dictate what we choose to work on in the movement we have to be fighting against them it doesn't matter like if we seem like we're up against a lot we have to like keep pushing we can't just cave every time that it seems like we're, we're starting to lose we have to push back and um push back harder and hopefully push back more together and and think strategically and not not let the naysayers talk us out of it too yeah
0: yeah. Well, those are very wise words. Anything final you want to add?
2: Mm.
0: Jeremy, anything <laughs> else you want to add? I'm tired. I'm tired. It's <laughs> been a long day for, and a long weekend. By the way, these two are also lead organizers of a veg fest that just unfolded in Salt Lake City. It was beautiful and amazing. Oh, thank Lots you. of delicious food, music, and fun, and some good conversation, too, which uh, I'm particularly as grateful to you for talking to me, given how packed your weekend was. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah.
2: No, we're we're glad to do it.
0: Awesome. All right, well, keep up the great work and thanks for sharing. And, and, and yeah, I think we can deploy and I hope we can deploy some of the lessons from that case for the future of the animal rights movement and just the world. So thanks, Amy. Thanks, yeah. Jeremy. Thank, Thank you, Wayne. Cool. Really, really fascinating conversation. I um, heard some things that I didn't realize had happened back when Amy did this action that led to... Uh, really kind of a historic constitutional and First Amendment case. Like, I didn't realize that <laughs> she hadn't planned the entire thing. She just decided one day to just do something. And, and I think that's such a good lesson for all of us. And and particularly for those of you wondering, you know, my thought process as, as I approach trial, by far the most important thing I would like to see in this movement and in this community and frankly in the entire world is for people to just do something. Do something to make the world a better place. Don't let the authorities, the industry, even kind of the prevailing social norms prevent you from doing things that you believe are right. Doing things that you believe are kind and and certainly rescuing an animal who's in distress. I would say that counts as right and good and kind. But I do want to give you a heads up that there's a lot of support. We're going to ask you um, to offer us. And by us, I mean, not just me and Paul but the animals trapped in these factory farms because they're the ones who are being most victimized in this process. And, and in particular, there's gonna be a call to action coming out over the next few days. Um, stay tuned if you're on my mailing list, um, you'll hear about it. If you're on DXC's mailing list, you'll hear about it, but we're gonna do a social media call to action. Some of the actions you can take, emails and phone calls to put pressure on these industries to do the right thing, not just for me and Paul, but for the animals too. Because um, no animal, human or non-human, deserves to live in a cage. So stay tuned for that, and, and as always, just um, thanks to all of you for the support. It's, it's been a, a rough and interesting journey over the last few months and years. It's getting close to the conclusion. We will see how this all resolves in the next few weeks, and I am just so appreciative of all your support. So thank you. Thanks to all the folks helping out this podcast, Ronnie Rose, Priya Sahani, Dean Rozakowski, Julie Waldrop, Shalala Fakas. You're all amazing, Um, and yeah, let's just do something. Because if we keep doing something, no matter what happens at this trial, we're gonna win. Thanks so much.